Hello, and before you get started on this episode of Zap to the Past, we would just like to give a massive shout out to the following people Andy Marsh, Cole Hutchinson, David Hearn, Sven Osa, 2000DC, Gary Heather, Roger McNally, Lee Dove, Mark Fletcher, Etienne Vettingfeld, Niall Bullitt, Alexander Gosling, Tim TJ Walker, Phil Sowerby, Joshua Kay, Dominic Kendrick, Rune P, Nick James, Daniel Spreadbury, Peter Price, Richard Davey, Dennis B, AL82 Retro, Liam Carew, Dylan Darch, Trevor Planner, Alistair McMillan, Mark Schutz, Lee Sparkles, Dan Wales, Gary Wilson, Oscar Jacobson, Brian Howarth, Rob Clayton, Clyde Radcliffe, Juan Luis Sanchez, Adam Askew, Lee Staples, and Jason Hutchins. These amazing people have backed our patron at the C64 tier, and the support they offer is just awesome. If you want to join them, get a mention in next month's shout-out, access to our Discord server, early access to ad-free episodes, along with any special releases we put out along with anything else we can think of, and sign up by the 18th of the month at patreon.com. It's up to the past, but a little more than the price of a pint of beer. It helps us keep playing the games so you don't have to. Welcome to episode 136 of Zapped to the Past. I am Adrian Mills and I'm joined as always by Mr. Graham Raddings. If you haven't listened before, this is a podcast where we discuss games that released for the Commodore 64. Last week, we looked at our first batch of games from issue 55 of Zap 64, which we are in no way affiliated with, and were bored by Batman, caused chaos in Cosmic Pirate, and went full-on kung fu in Kendo Warrior. This week, we conclude our look at the games in November 1989, along with what was lighting up our TV and cinema screens that month. Graham, what do we have to look forward to now the new year is fully underway? In this French fancy of an episode where we closely examine the relationship and key differences between Nutella and Aldi's Notoka, we check our enthusiasms, pick some fresh apples from the tree, not the barrel, and see if this game is made the Chicago way or is in fact nothing but code and a badge. In the C64 version of The Untouchables, head to the big top, slip on our leotards and ascend the high wires and trapezes of Formula One. Yes, actually we race around the bends, shimmy around the straights, crash on the chicanes and worry about the wobbles of the C64 conversion of Continental Circus. And then we climb into our most boring tank on a quest to drive aimlessly and shoot around the dull brown world of Borington on brown in the utterly idiotic firepower. Turns out both Nutella and Notoka are a combination of oils, sugars, chocolate and nuts. Four things I tend to avoid no matter how they are spread. While we untangle all of that, we plod into another gang-related scrolling C64 street fight, this time dressed as a 70s glam rock star and very slowly kicking our way across an uninspiring city in Vigilante, before finally exploring yet another arcade racer conversion, this time more akin to driving a go-kart on a roller coaster in the bumpy and technically incredible Power Drift. More licenses, more Hollywood film tie-ins, and more troubles. For every yin, there is a yang, and we have had to play some yangs this week. Sheesh. Oh, the goodness, the riches, the stuff, <laughs> the all stuff. the stuff. Oh, the stuff. There's so much stuff. 
So um, much lovely stuff. So much lovely things. Sort of thing. There are five games this week. Five games. Okay. Um, so just the five. But I'm just going to say, should we just quit? Should we just skip the preamble and just get straight into the first one? Because I think the first one is going to be a long one. We had any preamble, but yeah, sure, go for it. Well, we do. We normally have a little bit of a chat and a chitter chatter oh, about well, stuff. So, yeah. well, should we just get like straight us into doing it? that? Oh, no, no, you, yeah, you don't want any preamble. <laughs> that's fine. You. <laughs> But to be fair, we've got a lot to explore, so I, I agree with you, actually, because there's some things that need to be said of, about some things that need to be said, I fear. <laughs> there are. So let's get into that first game. And that first game, well, it's uh, well, it's the Untouchables. This is it. Is this an Untouchable game, Graham? Let us, let us see. Find we? out. Let's find let out. Let's see. This is the second of this month's gold medals. And once again, it's a film adaptation from Ocean. This is the Untouchables. It was originally the film was originally released in 1987. It's full price, by the way, nine pound ninety nine. Only got ninety six percent. When did ninety six percent become a gold medal mark? By the way, I was thought it was ninety seven. Yes. Mm. When yes. did that happen? I don't know. We don't know. No, I don't know. Uh, the film was originally released in 1987. We spoke about it back then. Directed by Brian De Palma, starred Kevin Costner as Elliot Ness, bought from Sean Connery, Andy Garcia, and Charles Martin Smith as the four titular Untouchables. It was the story of the four treasury agents in Chicago trying to stop and capture Al Capone, who was played by Robert De Niro, for illegal booze smuggling, amongst other things, probably. It's a classic gangster movie, um, and I rate it on the great side of De Palma's films. There's great yes. De Palma's films. And there's not so great Department films. This is True. on the great side for me. It's got some amazing moments throughout and an epic score from Ennio Morricone. Just a bit. Let's just leave that. It's a stylish film as well. The wardrobe was in it was designed by Giorgio Armani. There you go. It was. And uh, well, according to IMDb, I found these some tra- facts that De Niro tracked down Al Capone's original tailors and had them make some identical clothing for him in the movie and insisted on wearing the same style of silk underwear that Al Capone wore even though it would never be seen on camera. Uh, method acting for you, see, but really it wasn't isn't it? Al, Capone's act, Al Capone's actual underpants, because that would be a bit weird. <laughs> would be, especially as he died of syphilis, did he? Like, he died, died in prison. I'm not sure what he died of. But, I think you know. he died of syphilis in prison. I don't think he'd want to wear his underpants regardless. So. <laughs> anyway, despite all this production around the edges, the film is beautifully shot and acted, and it's hard. Its themes of obsession and loyalty still make it worth watching today. And so with all this, we come to the game. This was produced by John Woods, coded by John Megan, graphics and titles by Stephen Thompson, and music by Matthew Cannon and Jonathan Dunn. Dunn, Dunn, Dunn. Push pineapple, shake a tree. <laughs> so before we get into the nitty gritty, I want to read what the manual has us do. So this is from the manual. This is from Fair the enough. instructions, okay? Fair enough. So there's quite a lot here. It says, experience an American legend. Weird way to start uh, this. Relive the knife edge existence of Elliot Ness in his struggle against the retribution of mobster Capone. That sentence doesn't make sense. No, and it's not true. No. Take on the mob. Six breathtaking action sequences. That's not true either. Put you in control of Elliot Ness's elite squad of crime busters. Alleyway shootouts, the border raid, the railway station, confrontation, and warehouse bust culminating in the thrilling denouement of a rooftop duel as you relive the knife-edge existence of Ness in his struggle against the retribution of Capone. Who wrote this? Who wrote Somebody this? Somebody clearly didn't watch the film. <laughs> or understand what the notion of retribution is. Thrilling, that thrilling action on the streets of Chicago. And so we get to the scenario. Original and diverse arcade-style sections put you in control of Elliot Ness's elite squad of crime busters. The warehouse bust, the border raid, the alleyway shows. We've got this already before. Why are you telling this again? Take on the mob as you lead the Untouchables on their most exciting and difficult mission. 
with six levels of explosive action and a thrilling denouement. Someone's just found out what denouement means as well. Yeah, I'm just repeating themselves weirdly as well. <laughs> I know, What's going on? It's weird, isn't it? The Untouchables live in American legend. At this point in the blurb, I'm starting to notice a lack of real understanding of the film and the themes within it. It's just it mm. doesn't seem to it doesn't seem to be there. I'm now looking at an 80s 8-bit video game, but the language here does not seem to fit with the film. But let's go on and see what awaits us in these six sections. Now, these are described in the manual as thus. Section one is the warehouse. You find out that Capone's thugs are working in a derelict warehouse, bootlegging liquor. You bust in on them in an attempt to break up their operation. However, the surprise attack yields a few bonuses as some of Capone's bookkeepers are present, and you must take the opportunity of capturing them in order to gather preliminary evidence of his activities. Okay, that's part one. Section two is the bridge. Mm -hmm. Acting on information gained from the warehouse raid, you attempt to thwart an illegal liquor run at the US-Canadian border. Armed with a shotgun, you and your men must find the liquor by avoiding Capone's henchmen. Okay, that's that's the second one. Part three is the alleys. Getting a tip-off from one of the men at the border, you head for the train station where Capone's accountant is trying to leave the country. You must get to him and the evidence before the train leaves. Capone's mob hear of your intentions and will try anything to thwart the Untouchables' mission. As you progress through the streets of Chicago on your way to the train station, you are confronted by ambushes at every turn. You must eliminate all of your attackers before you can safely reach the station. Mm. Okay. Section four is the train station. As Ness awaits the arrival of the accountant, he helps a woman lift her baby in a pram up the stairs of the railway station. Before he reaches the top, Capone's accountant arrives with an armed escort and opens fire. He lets go of the pram and starts to fire back. Okay. Section five, the hostage. Realising he's the last one left in the station, one of Capone's henchmen takes the accountant hostage at gunpoint and threatens to shoot him in five seconds if you do not lay down your arms. Okay, that's part five. And finally, part six, the mm-hmm. rooftop. With the evidence all collected, Capone is in court for the trial. His head hitman, Frank Nitty, is still at large, however, and you must chase him across the court rooftop and avenge Malone's death. Who's Malone? Not even been mentioned. <laughs> this is the final and bloody shootout, which if successful will result in Nitty falling to his death. There you go. That's spoilers. The, yeah, there you go. So that's the game. That's from the manual. Each part is different and offers a different experience to the one before it. So there's plenty of variety here. The game first loads with a, a very good loading screen, but that's not Kevin Costner. No, no, it's a Aldi version. <laughs> it's a, it, it's a, I don't know, Bevin Losner. I don't know who it is. Melvin Bosner. <laughs> Melvin Bosner. It's not on this screen anyway. So I'm not sure. So on this opening screen, we get to load in. It's not Kevin Costner. It's just, it's just an untouchable. A-A-N untouchable. (laughs) We then get another screen after that of a random gangster carrying the classic violin case for some reason. For no reason whatsoever. No. And again, don't get me wrong. These two images are very well drawn. They are very good. So I'm not having a problem with them. They're very well drawn. They're just, I'm not, you know, I get what they're trying to do, but if this is based on the film Untouchables, I'm not seeing anything from the Untouchables here. And then the first level loads in. Now, for the playthrough, I used the Easy Flash version because this is a multi-load game. So from uh, when I played it through, um, I did use that. But I, I did check out the disc version as well to see how that played. And it, it was no different, just longer loading times in between yep. sections. So there's no real difference. When it does load, we get an oddly themed credit sequence that sets up the game. We are told of a young treasury agent who's sent to take down the mob in Chicago and sets up the untouchables. So in this kind of weird preamble, the music is good here um, on this opening section, but as the credits progress, they get really silly. Don't they just? And I don't know why. You start to get the impression that the game and the film are on very different trajectories from this point on. It's like, you know, there's just weird credits. I can't remember anything off the top of my head, but it's like... They're just silly. They're just silly. They're just stupid. Like underpants, Y-fronts provided by and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, why is this here? Why? You've got this sort of opening cinematic. You've got a nice font. The music's good. It's all good. The presentation is great. It's got good font, good music, film styles. The content here is where the problem lies. And this is going to be something that is going to trouble this game from here on out. It just doesn't work. 
I don't know yeah. what they're doing, and I don't know why they're doing it, and, and it baffled me to some degree. After you've watched these, you press fire on the joystick, you get to a menu where you can choose joystick or keys, music and sound effects, um, whatever you want. But pressing one to select the joystick or pressing your fire button gets us into level one. And this is where things take a proper turn right now. I don't know what's going on. So what I'm going to do here is, so I've sort of said what it said in the um, in the manual. What I'm going to do is go through the levels and just say what is there uh, before we get into them and see what the issues are with each one. So I'm really just going to overly describe what you see on screen. And yeah, stuff, yeah methodical, that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, the music changes here from the moody score of the title screen, which I'm going to probably guess was Jonathan Dunn. Sounds like a Jonathan Dunn piece. Yeah. To the Matthew Cannon piece, whoever his name was, whoever. Um, so what it changes, it changes from that, Moody score of the title screen to a, a jaunty speakeasy piece. I don't know how else to describe it. It's that kind of thing. Charleston. It's like a Charleston. Ch- Charleston, music. yeah. But it'll soon get very annoying. But get used to it because it's all you're going to hear for right. every single bloody level. I don't I don't know why. I don't get it. Level one is a side on multi-scrolling affair. This is set in the warehouse. Now, I think this is the, is this the first sequence in the film where they go bust the warehouse. I presume this is supposed mm, to be that bit. It must be that bit, I think. Because it's it's not the bit where they go to the post office. No, no, it's definitely the bit where they go on they go on a raid, don't they? And Al Capone yeah. um, has got the tip off, so they go in there and they find umbrellas, don't they? But that's the very small, very small part. Very and then there's a bit part. later where they raid a load of warehouses, but that's, that's still not that. No, set in the warehouse from the film, you play Ness, and you must run around the location trying to find the bookkeepers who are present. The action takes up two thirds of the screen, so at the bottom, whilst the UI is at the top. The UI shows your score. The time remaining, you only have six minutes to complete this level. The amount of evidence collected, your health, shown once again by Ness's face that slowly turns into Al Capone as you take damage. Just like in Batman and that other game we can't remember, it just seems to be a bit of a staple for their their, uh, health things, doesn't it? Um, There's also an empty violin case. For when you, I think you might pick up, you pick up a better weapon and you get a number next to it, showing you've got some better, better weapon bullets, but mm. not they do anything. Uh, and there's also a blank, blank mystery square in the top right at this point. It's just a blank square. <laughs> there is. The level is confined, being about three or four screens wide, maybe a couple of screens high, and is made up of platforms with crates used to jump up and down between the platforms, despite the presence of ladders which you can't use. Stupid, stupid. <laughs> there's ladders there. Why can't I use the ladders? Why draw ladders? Yeah, good question. Why are they there? <laughs> Why draw them if you can't use them? Don't know. Controls are simple, I guess. Uh, left and right to run up to run about. As up and diagonals for jumping, down for crouch, and the fire button to shoot. That's kind of it. As you run about, a never-ending supply of gangsters will also be after you, following you as you leap about, and they also leap about and jump up and down and do everything you do. Shortly, a green arrow will appear in the mystery box in the top right, and this will point you in the direction of one of the bookkeepers you must now find and shoot. If you do, then it will drop a piece of evidence, which you can then collect, and this will increase your evidence score by a mighty 10%. So you need to do this 10 times to complete the level. Uh, there are also green goons running about, um, and sh- goons, gangsters, whatever, and sh- uh, shooting these either gets you a time bonus that they drop or a Tommy gun upgrade, which which goes in the violin case. That's it. Once you complete this, you get a newspaper pop-up stating that a mob conspiracy might be afoot and the second se- second level loads in. That's not what happens in the film. He gets absolute taking the piss out of in the newspapers because they take a photo of him with the umbrella. Yep. So I don't know what's going on here. They've, they've, they've just they've diverged from the plot of the film. So this is no longer oh, the Completely. Uh, so we get the second level loads in. This is the bridge. Got the same music as the first level. Completely out of place. It's ridiculous. Just a bit. You play all four of the Untouchables here, in, in and you, you play them all in rolling mode. That's what this is. It's called Rolling Untouchables, Rolling Mode. Oh, stupid. The screen is split the same way, with the game taking up the bottom two-thirds and the UI at the top. This shows the four Untouchables, and these, once again, it uh, uses icons that slowly of each one, but they slowly turn into Al Capone as their health is lowered. 
Um, then you have the time and score for the level. And finally, in the top right, you have a zoomed-in image of where you are aiming. Okay, so playing as any of the four untouchables, you must roll across the bottom of the screen. At the top, so we've kind of got a 3D image here, sort of thing, a pseudo 3D, and you're rolling across the bottom, aiming uh, at the top of the sort of display where there's a barricade of trucks and crates behind which gangsters run around or pop out and shoot at you. It's a, it's a shooting carnival game. It's a pop out and try and shoot them. You roll around and you try and aim um, using that aiming thing at the top right. So, yeah, there are problems. Controls here, bottom two diagonals to roll in either direction and then any other direction on the joystick to aim your gun and fire to shoot. You only have a limited amount of view in your aiming window, so you need mm-hmm. to roll around quite a lot to take down the gangsters and try and aim. Um, if you complete this, um, you can roll off to the left or right, and if you do roll it to the, as far left as you can or far right, then you can roll in with another uh, untouchable, another mm-hmm. one of the characters. So you can swap characters, but you have to get all the way over to the side. So if you're running low on health, go and swap them over. You have to complete this as well by keeping, and you have to keep Elliot Ness alive in this section. Yeah. Because um, if you don't, it's game over. So it is. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. So the fact, despite the fact that you, I don't know, another loading screen, and this one is definitely Kevin Costner. So fair enough, this one is definitely Kevin Costner. And this takes us to the alleys. This has the same layout as the bridge, the same UI and screen layout. So the same stuff across the UI at the top um, and the same screen. You have a 3D view down an alleyway and you must move a crosshair about as you, uh, you're at the bottom right in a sort of lent up against the wall. It's like a, you know, it's like a cover shooter, an, a, an early version of a cover shooter. And you're at the bottom right behind cover and you've got a crosshair. When you move the crosshair about, you've got to move it down and shoot the various gangsters who are popping out from behind stuff, out of windows and all that kind of stuff. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a light gun shooter, essentially. You have only two shots. So you've got a shotgun and you've only got two shots in your shotgun. So you must return to cover each time you, uh, you've, you've used them to reload. So, okay. So that's what you've got to do. So you've got to pop out, maybe take a couple of shots and then got pop back in. Problem is, as soon as you move the crosshair, you lean out from cover the gangsters are on the other side of the alleyway yes the problem this is a problem to get back in you've got to move your crosshair back across to the right hand side mm-hmm. and lean back in timing while every all the while while you are exposed you you're getting hammered with bullets okay so that's what happens so if you do get past that you're onto section four which is the train station if we get a weird, weird shot of a baby's pram and a real close-up of a gun <laughs> it's an odd, it's an, <laughs> yeah i feel sorry for that pram it's, it's yes. weird before the level Just starts very unfortunate yeah, this is a top-down affair where you as Ness must protect the baby in the pram from the film by taking out the gangsters as they run around after you. The UI at the top shows you and the baby with the same depiction of health. Um, so as as you know, as you lose health, either you or the baby loses health, take shots, Al Capone appears behind you. The screen scrolls downwards as the baby trundles down the steps of the station. You can push the pram, you can run into it from left to right and push it um, across the steps, left or right, or you can stand in front of it to stop it. This is... The ridiculous part, because if you could stand in front of it, stop it, you just push it back up and put it to safety. Yep. <laughs> Wouldn't you? You just yes, the you point would. the whole point of the film, the bit in the film is he can't catch the pram. Exactly. <laughs> it's Andy Garcia who slides across to the bottom and saves yes. it and stops it, yeah, because he ca- he doesn't catch it, in fact. Yeah, you yeah, exactly. Elite Ness doesn't catch it. So the as I said, the UI at the top shows you and the baby, same thing. You push the pram from left to right, or you can go in front of it to stop it. There's goons running around and you basically it's basically a commando. It's like a downward scrolling commando variant. This you're just running about top down, there's goons and you fight mm. fire and move in eight ways, and that's it. It's a commando style, but you're just pr- trying to protect this pram from getting shot. If you complete this, we get a section five where you must save the accountant. This is five it's tech, you've got five seconds to do this. So this is this is some going to call this a level. It's ridiculous, utterly ridiculous. <laughs> it's five seconds, and it's a first-person target shooter, much like the level in RoboCop, where you've got to shoot the goon who's got the woman Funny that. in the alleyway. Very, very How strange. Very, very similar that John Megan did both of them. Weird, isn't it? Very strange. Mm, it's very odd. strange. Yeah. So the account has been held by a gangster. You need to shoot them, save the accountant. 
and the UI, UI here again is the same as previous level. It's just the baby's face has been replaced by the accountants. If you save him, then it's on to section six. Uh, before we do that, we get the classic image of Costner's nest standing, pointing his gun at the screen and holding up his badge. That's a well-drawn image. Oh, scanned. Yeah. I don't know what it is. It's no, good, it's though. It's definitely drawn, but it's good. It's, it is very good. Before heading into the final part. This part sees us on the rooftop in a shootout with Nissi, the assassin from the film in the white suit. This is similar to the alley section, and Nissi is at the end of a row of sort of structures on the top of the roof, and you need to lean out and shoot him. And each time you do, you get closer to him until finally he's running on the edge of the building, and shooting him there gives you a first-person view of him plummeting to his death in a splash of blood as he lands on a car. Gruesome. Grim. Gruesome. If you do that, then well done. You've completed the game. And that's it. So this huge multi-part, take it to the streets, and that's it. You've got one, two, three, four shooting alleys, a, ba- a commando clone, and a platformer. That's what mm. we've got. That's what we've got here. Just... All right. So this is another multi-part first. So it's similar to um, you know what last week, Batman or this month's Batman, that's tried to capture the main parts of the film um, and... You know, well, let's see. We'll say, I'll say that the music aside, the production around this is very good. That's what I will say. Let's start with the positives. The visuals in all the sections are excellent. There's great high-res sprite overlays in the first level. Great use of color, shading, and animation throughout. I have no issue with the visuals in this game. I think they're really, really good. Mm-hmm. I think that. The interstitial scenes are also very well drawn, and it runs pretty flawless, flawlessly with no sprite flickering or anything that I saw raster flickers on show. It's a well-coded game that runs flawlessly. You can go through yep. it a whole way sort of thing, and you can do that. There's no problem with that. The music is annoying, though, in all the levels, and really misses a beat when you had, as I said, the amazing Ennio Morricone soundtrack that underpinned the film. Da-da-dun. Yep. Da-dun. Yep. Da-da-dun. Absolutely. Da-dun. In fact, what I want you to do at this point, Graham, is I want you to do, mm. I want you to put in a little clip here of the Ennio Morricone score, just a little clip, just a... Mm-hmm. Yeah. We'll just use your version. Yeah, you could do that. And now I want you to put in <laughs> the music from the game, just so people can hear it. You can tell the difference. Hopefully you can. Okay. So that, you know, completely plinky-plonky, happy-go-lucky tune, drives you mad. It just adds no atmosphere to any of the scenes. I don't know why it's there. You know, I I think back to something like Last Ninja, okay? Yep. Last Ninja with its 12 bits of music, loading each one, each loading bit had its own interstitial bit of music, and each level has its own music done by two composers, Anthony Lees and Ben Daglish. Why has this not got something the same? Why? Good question. It's not like it's out of the realm of possibility for multi-load games to have different bits of music, so I don't know. Anyway, let me come to the actual gameplay or lack thereof. The first level is atrocious. I'm just going to say it's atrocious. Mm. A boring run around a small level trying to find a target whilst being bothered by a never-ending wave of gangsters. You get bounced all over the place as contact with any gangster bounces you about down a level, you know, backwards, up a level, whatever, and loses you health. Um, it's really, really annoying. You can get bounced, like I said, all over the place. It loses your health, knocks you down, sometimes off the crates, and sometimes flings you off the fine crates, and you go all the way down in a diagonal towards the floor, lose loads of health as you sort of crumple to the floor. It'll be like, ah, yep. it's just annoying. You've got to shoot the bookkeepers if you can find them. They're a pain in the ass. Um, they sometimes get in bits, which is almost impossible to get up to shoot them in um, without yep. getting hit by them. 
Uh, if you do shoot them, then they drop evidence, but that evidence quickly disappears, like it's made of ether or something, made of smoke or something. <laughs> and if you run into any guards, they die instantly. They just fall around and die. He's like, Elliot Ness is like incredible type, but you lose energy. But if you run into a bookkeeper, they also die, but they don't drop the evidence, which is very frustrating because Stupid. why, if they die, do they not, why? So you've then got to wait for another one. It's a deeply flawed introduction to the game. Um, I read the, reading the comments on Lemon, which I do when I'm doing these bigger games, and loads of the straight, really weirdly apologetic about this game and this level in particular, going, oh, yeah, get over oh, that first level. <laughs> yeah, but it's a good game, though. Like, no, it isn't. So many, mm. many of them mention this level as a massive hurdle to the rest of the game. It's a pain in the ass. One of the most unfriendly intros to a game I've ever encountered, which wouldn't be so bad if the rest of the game after it was worth it. When you got into Cosmic Pirate last week, and we said about that, that had an initial hurdle to get past. But after that, the game felt worth it, and it was only three quid. So and didn't have a gold yeah. medal. Yeah, yeah, so you know, right. it, it was. There's a lot. There's a difference there. The rest of the here. The rest of the game is just as annoying. The bridge section. Why not just have a crosshair? Oh, so annoying. What happens is you're constantly looking at. You're not looking at the game. You're just looking at that top right of the screen, and then it keeps changing because why is roll on the down diagonals? How are you supposed to aim properly if two of your directions move you? So you're suddenly looking at a different Stupid. part. Like so you, dumb. The, it's ridiculous. I can't move my aiming section in those directions when I need to move. I've got to move to the right, then down, or to the left and back, to the left and back, back and to the left. Mm. I've, you know, it's literally JFK aiming here, but I can't go in diagonals. And the people are popping up on the floor. I've got to – it's ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. And you just, and while you're aiming at the top, what you're not doing is looking at anything else on the thing. So you're just kind of aiming at a really small parts. So loads of gangsters are appearing and just mullering you. My health was just go, dead. I was like – What's yeah. going on? I can't, you can't. You, you, it's a ridiculous thing to do. Just give me a crosshair. And when you do give me a crosshair, like in section three, why make me come out of cover every time I move the crosshair, which is so slow to move? I mean, I take loads of damage when the gangsters are on the other side of the alleyway. I don't yeah. understand it. I do not understand this. Nobody playtested this, or if they did, no, I don't understand. The baby section, it's okay. It's the downward scrolling commander. You can't really go wrong with that. Okay. It feels similar to the movie as well, apart from the fact that you can just stop the baby. But I'll give it in, mm. you know, there's a there's a bit where the baby goes down steps and it's done here and there's people running about and charging and shooting. And that does happen in the film. Yeah. Okay. I'm not too far. I'm not that that's probably the only bit in this game that I was like, all right, okay. It's still got stupid music though. And then you get to this next part, so saving the bookkeeper, which is another multi-load bit. So, ne- oh no, it's not. I think it's just straight in it. But you, you have this juddery hand. Suddenly, Elliot Ness is struck with um, some kind of palsy, or he's been on the booze. He's been drinking yeah, a lot of alcohol, yeah, yeah. all that c- captured booze because he's got the shakes mm. like no one I've ever seen. Which is weird because you'd think it would be at this point you'd be controlling Andy Garcia as as in the film. Yeah. And Andy Garcia, his hand is rock steady. That's what he's there in the film for. You got Famous this. Famous for his, uh, yeah, you got for this. his aim. I got it. Yeah. You ain't going to take it. Casually. <laughs> yep. It's brilliant, that sequence in the film. It's so well yep. done. And yet here, no. There's no consistency and there's no adherence to the film. Finally, the last scene, the shootout with Nissi, so spectacularly misses the point of the film at that point. Because it's not a shootout. It's not. You, you basically, he grabs him. You know, you have a little bit of thing and he, he dodges and he's out of bullets and he grabs him, I think, if I remember rightly. And then he's like, you're going to take me or and he says something about Malone, you're going to squeal like a walk and then I'll yeah, do it. Yeah, he's, he's, he's basically says he's going to beat the rap and that no matter what Elliot Ness is going to do, he'll beat the rap because he's mates yeah. with Al Capone and they've bought all the judges. And then, he, and then he mocks him for his friend. Yeah, he mocks Jim Malone's death and says, yeah. you know, he squealed like a pig and all that and he didn't yeah. take kindly to that, does he? So he lobs him off the roof. He throws him off the roof, yeah. And he goes, did he squeal something? Did he sound something like that? Great That's moment. right, yeah. 
you know, yeah, brilliant. Yeah. You know, he's had to, he's crossed the line, and it's all yeah. part of that. What will you do? As Malone said, you know, what what are you prepared to do? Yeah, it's exactly. The, it's the whole thing completely missed, completely missed here. Anyway, so it's but it's also got the same problems as the alley section. You lean out as soon as you move the crosshair, and that, so you know, what do you say? I don't know. It's just a mess. They're just a sec- the all these sections are just a mess of regular ocean parts. They're just ocean. It's ocean, you know, ocean bits of ocean games. So we've got a bit of Bra- Batman here. We've got a bit of Robocop there. You know, we're just these bits. They're yeah, just nothing. Yeah. We've got a bit of Rastan Saga in the way that that first part is, you know, the jumping around on the platforms and stuff. It's just a bit of other ocean games that they're just cobbled together. And I don't get it. We've seen mostly scenes, like I said, in Robocop, also by John Megan. And do you, it's just a reskin. They're just reskinned with an Untouchables theme and shoved out the door. I can't get my head around this game. I've no doubt in the coding chops here, as I said earlier, but there's clearly been very little testing done on this to make it an enjoyable experience or in any way feel thematically consistent with the film. The shots from the film in the interstitial bits seem there just to remind you that you are playing the game based on that film. As the sequences mm. you take part in bear no resemblance to anything in the film itself. I mean, it's almost like that Chicago 30s that we played the other that ages ago sort of thing seems to have more in common. And that was yeah, nonsense. Yeah. The warehouse scene in the film, there's no bookkeepers running around. Nope. The bookkeeper doesn't appear. It's the accountant. Nope. They just don't know what they're on about. It's a complete bust for Ness with nothing there, and he contemplates giving up after being photographed with an umbrella. The bridge scene sees the use of the Canadian border force, and it's not just some simple roll-around thing with bad controls. I cannot understand how this got a gold medal or even a sizzler or even a good review. It's all mm. style and no substance while the film has both. And I, I wonder when this actually, the review of this the playing of this game took place. I, I, I reviewed it. Whether the Zap, I think the Zap team, they've probably gone to Ocean. I don't think this was reviewed in-house. Yeah, I don't think they possibly. had a copy. I think they've gone to Ocean, played the games there, because I can't understand how any reviewer would not have just pulled this to pieces from a gameplay perspective if they'd have had time to play it. Because it's just rubbish from that angle. I wonder if they, you know, I can see this, they've gone there, they've, they've played it a few months before it's out or a couple of months before it's out and maybe October, when they did that big Ocean special two months back, you know, when they had Untouchables on the cover. Mm. I think they've gone off to Ocean head HQ they played these games and that's where they've got it and they've gone like oh yeah no no that yeah it's a bit tricky at the moment or they've gone like oh just skip to that bit you know it's, oh we'll yeah that'll be toned in we'll tone that down don't worry it's a bit difficult we'll be toned and then nothing yeah, happened yeah maybe I think this is what's happened. I have no way of knowing, of course. I don't know. What I do know is that this is a poor product to play and in no way deserves the score it got here. I just cannot understand it. It reeks. It reeks of something. I don't know. I don't get it. Go back to that cover that featured the Untouchables. You know when Oliver Frey did the Untouchables film, which was on, which we thought was a bit weird, being in September and had New Zealand story mm. and Rainbow Island on, and it had that sepia-toned hues in it and sort of dark and moody and stuff like that. None of that's here. None of none of that's in this in this game. And then look at this plinky plonk bright nonsense with some interstitial screens to remind you of what you're playing. It's just I don't get it. I don't understand this game. It is rubbish from start to finish. Unplayable first sequence. It just goes, and then the rest are just boring alleyway or shooting galleries dull the only advice i can give is don't touch this game with a barge pole because it really should be <laughs> untouchable forgive me for that forced joke <laughs> pretty good rubbish 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 gold medal my mm. ass <laughs> awful i'd rather not <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah this, 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 i can tell you what medal it deserves it comes out my ass awful game what did you think graham it's funny our notes are very very similar very similar indeed i mean okay pretty graphics pretty stills you know good pixel work all right no problem with that but miserable to play and tonally all over the shop. I mean, mm. as you've said, and I'll just iterate uh, iterate as well, the music does not match the game or the thematic of the Untouchables. Like we said, it's probably more at home in some kind of gambling or poker type game. And we've perhaps heard music like that in those kind of games. Yeah. Again, as you pointed out, the film is a stylistic masterclass. It's famously over-stylized. 
Yeah. I don't suppose for a minute that the gangsters all wore Giorgio Armani suits back then, but here we are, they doing this, because it's super stylized, of course it is. And the thematic presentation is all about opulence and violence. Those are the kind of key themes of that film, opulence and violence, and how those two things interplay and interact and how they can't exist in the same space, those, mm-hmm. those things. That's matched, if you think about it, by the soundtrack, which blends both of those things. Robotic percussion, like you've said, short brass sections, and then large-scale flourishing sort of sounds that come, you know, when the mountie riders are riding over towards the bridge, you get these big, elaborate orchestral mm-hmm. sounds. And then you get these kind of whining kind of sounds that occur when Al Capone's on there. Those, that's how the film is interplaying those concepts. The game is completely devoid of all of that, completely devoid of it. So you take the core essence of the film, and we had this exact same notion about a couple of their other games. They've taken the core essence of the film, as they have interpreted it, people shooting at things. And that's kind of what this game is. It's just people shooting at stuff or wandering around looking for stuff. This is a mm-hmm. ocean template, without a doubt. Yeah. And because of that, you end up with what we've got, a series of interconnected, I hesitate to call them scenes because these relate to the movie in that they've got characters that are probably named the same thing but the same things aren't happening in the film not just tonally but in the game itself as you rightly state in that opening level which is absolutely awful it's just batman essentially with with unclimbable ladders which is stupid why would (laughs) elliot ness run around jumping on top of crates he doesn't do that in the film he doesn't just he opens the crates with a crowbar at the end of a massive shootout Maybe. But in fact, actually, in the film, he doesn't go in there guns blazing. They just go come in and say, this is the federal whatever. This is a holdup. They open one of the crates. And but as it turns out, the gangsters had a tip off. And so he's, he's, no, he's left with egg on his face, as it were. That isn't a level of a game that you could make anyway. So why turn that sequence? Of all the sequences you could have done, why that? Of all the sequences when you're shooting at targets, there's a sequence in the film where you're shooting at a target, where you, he goes to the, see Andy Garcia's character in a shooting range. Yeah. Now that would yeah. be a good level where you had to prove that you had the aim so that you could, Andy Garcia could join the team or something. I mean, that, that, I'm not, you know, I'm not wanting to put levels in their mouths, but there are enough scenes in that film of importance that you could easily have translated them. When Jim Malone gets shot, you know, you could, there's a whole sequence there. There's, there's dozens of them, dozens of them. Yeah, and the famous Odessa steps or Odessa step sequence, you know, which is the which is the homage sequence where the baby's trundling down the steps and all of that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, fine. Yeah. That's probably the only one in it that's translated into the game, and it's actually quite a good idea in the way that they've done it. Apart from the fact that they put that stupid music on it, which kills it instantly because it feels the music feels more like it's from the film The Sting, and it has less to do with Elliot Ness and, and gangsters, and also. The idea of going down the stairs and preventing the baby from getting injured and running like like you said, it's actually contingent on other characters, which would have been a great way to have it so that you had to control multiple characters in that level instead of just running around like Rambo shooting all the gangsters. Of which, by the way, there's maybe only three or four in the film, maybe five. It's not it's not full of them. And there's people I noticed in the um in the game, there's lots of women characters running around. In the film, there's one. Yeah. Who's, who's the mother of the baby that's trundling down the steps. And in fact, the poor guy that gets in the way is, I think it's a naval guy that's got a big sack on his back that's coming up the steps. Yeah, just, it's shot, just like they yeah. yeah. like saw something and then zipped through it on forward winds. Went, oh, zzz, oh, zzz, oh yeah, we, get, we get the basics of it. You know, it's, it's how it feels. And then the whole idea of the bookkeeper part and the notion of that bookkeeper, that's really the most important part. You know, the, the idea of that sequence is that they need to capture the bookkeeper because he's the only one who can transcribe the books and the accountant books they find because they're all coded in the book, in the bridge sequence. So yeah, it's yeah. just, it's just, but none of that is relevant here, is it? Because that's not the vibe they went for. It's just, just you know, that's me trying to 
apply some kind of logic to this because if you took out all of that away, it's just, it just doesn't it doesn't make any sense, does it? Like if the game is not about what the film is about in in terms of what happens in the film, because the, right from the get go, it's not correct. <laughs> things it's things not. don't happen that way. There aren't lots of bookkeepers. There's one. That's the reason why he's that important. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. that's the key reason why Al Capone wants him dead or wants him out of the way anyway. So, and it rolls all the way up to that final level where you shoot Frank Nitti. And, and I just found that such, I mean, the stupid part when you've got the target, the bookkeepers, you know, the, you know, the six second level. But when you target in Frank Nitti, it's just that, for me, that whole sequence, and, and I, agree, I agree with you completely, that sums up everything that is wrong with this game, everything, because it so fundamentally misses the mark of what that sequence is about and ultimately what the film is about. Because as you say, he throws him off the roof because he decides his morals are never going to win a battle against the immoral. Mm-hmm. Because all the way through, he's remained moral right the way through the court case. And then he realizes that the judge has been bought and his morals are starting to, he's starting to question him at that point. It's like, well, what am I going to do? And then he realizes, then he's got this quandary where he's got this gangster who basically says, I'm going to get off here and I'm going to probably kill more of your friends. And they're all going to sound like this. So at that point, he makes the decision, doesn't he? And in his head, you've got those words, like you said. Now you've got Jim Malone saying to him, you know, you want to know how to get Capone? They pull a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. He decides to go the Chicago way. He does. Off the roof. And in doing so, then goes back in. And then he obviously then lies to the judge, essentially, to make sure that Al Capone gets the conviction. And so he's gone the Chicago way. That's the whole turning point of the film. He's not just talking a badge. He is, you know, one of these enforcers. He's an untouchable. Finally, that's what Jim and all the other characters that were working with Elliot Ness were trying to get him to be all along. That's the, that's the crux of the film. You don't get that by just lobbing him off a roof, getting a blood curtain, going, end of game, well done, you're finished. <laughs> blood you curtain. don't get that, do you? They got old blood curtain. I mean, and also, just as a footnote, you know, violin cases for Tommy Guns, it's a cliche that doesn't happen in The Untouchables at all. Nope. And I'll no, tell you doesn't. why it doesn't happen, because in this iteration and modernization of The Untouchables story, let, let's forget The Untouchables is an actual kind of Based, loosely based on re- real events. That was kind of a, you know, the Chicago gangsters of the 30s kind of movies, you know, that were, get my Tommy gun kind of movies. Yeah, that, that was where they had them in violin cases and those kind of, you know, old 30s gangster movies, that kind of thing. But mm-hmm. not this one. This The whole point of The Untouchables was that they were trying to get away from that kind of cliched view of uh, gangsters with their Tommy guns and all of that, which is why you don't really see it in this film that much. But to have a picture right at the beginning with a gangster with a violin case, I was like, oh, really? Yeah, goodness me. So everything, and so it felt to me actually from the music and everything else downwards that everything with this game was treated like some kind of farce. The subject matter, the film's core theme, the characters, the music, because the characters are neither here nor there. You may as well just have four random enforcers. It doesn't matter that they're four actual characters that all have a part to play and one of whom gets murdered along the way. Yep. Or two, actually, sorry, two of whom get murdered along the way. Two of them get killed, yeah, yeah. Two of them get murdered. You know, but why why worry about all of that? You know, there's a real story underneath all this, which is about brutal gangsters, gang leaders, and a regime of violence and corruption. It's selling a film that was not aimed at kids to kids. Yes. So people shooting at stuff. Yeah. Right? Remember what we said about the core theme. So, you know, but this isn't a very good people shooting at stuff game, is it? It borrows little bits of Operation Wolf, but not very good bits. It borrows little bits of Robocop, little bits of Batman. It's just borrowing the not very good bits. And then they've crammed it, put some sort of thematically-ish graphics in there. And what you end up with is this, this, this game, which is an interconnected series of levels maybe set around the idea of the Untouchables-ish. So it's just, for me, rubbish. A testament to the way that Ocean were perhaps working at that time, and having a little look in the Ocean history book shows you that the, the, the developers were thought they'd done, a, you know, they had some time for this. They thought they'd done a great job. And I, I have to say, while I agree that the graphics and the and the sound and the code and everything else is really good, 
this doesn't feel like it's a original code base for this. This actually feels like it's code that they already had. Oh, which yeah, makes yeah. the idea that they didn't then spend the time that they didn't have to use to develop a game engine to actually further the design of the game and make it really tie into the thing, not just stick a load of images in between the loading screens to, of random characters to make it feel untouchably. Well, then they'd have had to write new code, wouldn't they? That's what I mean. So, <laughs> so you would think that that would buy you, because in the, in the book, they, um, both the, um, the chaps that made this cite the fact that this was, you know, they were given time, they felt this was a really great design, that they were able to, you know, really put some thought into this and over the expanse of the levels and really create something unique. And then on the preceding pages later in the book, they also explain how they held wild parties that were, um, that were often attended by newsfield publications who were their favorite magazine to bring to because they brought loads of fun to the parties. Something tells me that the review of this is maybe a result of lots of positive partying. I don't and know. Less, yeah. less about playing. I don't know for sure. But this is not a gold medal. This is not 96%. And this is not a good film tie-in. And it's not a good game. It is a hodgepodge of loads of ideas that don't work connected to a film that they clearly didn't watch with uninspired everything and the music is an abomination for a game of this type because of how good the music is in the film. So I think this is is a tragedy. It's a tragedy and yet another Hollywood Holly weird film. So no. <laughs> Holly won't. Yeah, yeah. Just it's just no. No, 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 no. I don't get the reverie for this. I see a few people in Lemon going, Oh, this is a great game, it's brilliant. I'm thinking you don't fall for the graphics and go and watch the film because that's what you need to do. If, if you go to the entry for this on c64wiki.com, there's three reviews at the bottom going, I don't understand this game. Why has it got so high? I don't understand mm. the scores it got. There's three more like that saying that. I would argue that I'm going to sort of maybe say that, I mean, this is what we're in. We're issue 55, aren't we? So this is the fifth issue with the new review team. So I imagine that to, to get the lead in time for the writing and everything, they probably saw this about three or four months prior. They were probably quite new onto the gig, maybe only sort of one or two maybe. issues in. You know, I don't know what their sort of you know journalistic history was at that point. I don't know about them. So I don't know whether they just had the wool pulled over their eyes a little bit by Ocean at some party. I don't know. I think you get thrown a lot of stuff and you're maybe a young, impressionable journalist and they're like, yeah, we'll change maybe. that. Let's change. And, you know, I honestly don't know, but I don't know how. I don't see how these two games, Batman and Untouchables, were two gold medals. I just don't get it. I don't understand. No. It makes no. no sense to me because they're boring, boring yeah. games, which just are not very fun to play. How can a gold medal game get be not fun to play? It makes no sense, but let's contextualize Ocean and their and how much yeah. money they had and how much marketing muscle they had. Yeah, exactly. And that maybe then maybe that's the real reflection of why these games are getting gold medals, because they simply had the money to pay for it. It would be a case of, you know, we're buying X amount of advertising in your magazine, which is already shrunk. Yes. And we're not going to do that yeah. if you don't give these yada yada. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Who knows? We certainly don't, but it's certainly something you can't get through about. There we go. That's the Untouchables. Don't touch it. Don't touch it. Don't touch it. Let's move on. We've still got two games this part. There's only five games. So we've got two, three this, this part. So we'll get on to our second game of the week. And so, Graham, it's over to you to tell us all about the Continental Circus. Roll up, roll up. Is it that kind of circus? <laughs> uh, no, no, it's Aww. not. <laughs> no, it's not. So Continental Circus then. Ooh, na, 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 na. No, not that at all. No. nine ninety nine according to the price tag. Uh, 74%, so it's three quarters good or 25 or 26% bad. We'll find out in a minute. Published mm. by Virgin Mastertronic. Copyright was Tato. It's potato. Ooh, well, means potato. You know, you, know, you know what that means. Arcade conversion, y'all. Mm-hmm. The coder here is Pete Hickinson and Bill Count. Now, they made Chubby Gristle, the monsters, and Chase HQ, apparently. 
Ooh. <laughs> Graphics are by Mark Edwards. He did The Flintstones, The Monsters and Chubby Gristle. Title screen Mark Edwards and the box art. Peculiar credit that. David John Rowe. Okay. We're going to dive into a little bit about Continental Circus. So before I describe the actual game itself, Continental Circus is, of course, a arcade. And this was a Tato arcade. Um, it was a massive, well, it was quite a big cabinet. The cabinet was actually in the shape of a Formula One car, if you got to play the sort of big sit-down version. Um, so, you know, quite popular that. And in actuality, in, in some instances, the arcade came with a 3D visor that you could wear. Now, I never saw this version ever. No, I didn't know Apparently, you could pop a 3D visor and you can actually play this in kind of a quasi-3D, a bit like Battlezone type 3D, but a 3D eff- effective effect. But there was a dip switch setting, which meant you could just switch that off. I suspect that's what happened in a lot of the things. And in the game itself, just because you'll never know this, because um, it's not explained anywhere, you're actually driving a 1987 Camel-sponsored Honda Lotus 99T Formula One car, which was the car driven by Ayrton Senna in ni- between 1916 and 1984, and Satori Nakajima as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, And just to make sure that you, there was no confusion between the sponsors, they changed their names subtly. So Camel and DeLonghi are changed in terms of spelling. Now, that was in the arcade. You won't really get that from the C64 version. No, you won't. And just for complete clarity, the game was actually meant to be called Continental Circuits, but due to a classic translation error, similar to what happened with Donkey Kong, Continental Circuits became (laughs) Continental Circus. (laughs) Weirdly, that was changed back in the US later down the line. That was actually changed to Continental Circuit. But by the time it had got over there, all the all the arcade hardware had had all of its printouts for all of the cabinets and everything else, and it said Continental Circus. And then it turns out, now I don't know if this is true or whether it's not, because I've never heard it really, but apparently there is a range of tracks, the eight tracks that you play, similar to what you play in the game, which is known as the Continental Circus. I'm like, is it though? Or do you- <laughs> <laughs> Did you retcon that? <laughs> Did you- yeah, exactly. I'm not, not that was, so sure. I mean, anyway. That's fortuitous really, isn't it? That a, a complete misprint and a mis- miscommunication totally. and mistranslation would actually coincide <laughs> with a world famous event that no one knew about until exactly. this uh, mistranslation happened. So no, I'd never heard of it, and maybe it exists, maybe it doesn't. I don't know. I don't really form, follow Formula One, really, so what I don't truth, know much Brian? more about it. But, what is truth? Well, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, this was powered in the arcades by two Motorola 68000s running at a cozy 12 megahertz. The sound was by the, the classic Zylogs. The Zylogs sound like they're an alien race from another planet who made music chips that were run at four <laughs> me, more megahertz. And it also had a Yamaha YM2610, which means it had, you know, fancy pants sounds mm-hmm. with a screen resolution of 320 by 224, which seems low. But in arcade land, that is quite good because it yeah, moves yeah. quite fast, doesn't it? So anyway, and it was in a giant cabinet with steering wheels and stuff. La, 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 la. This, was, this came out, by the way, in the arcades in 1988. Just so we know, because really, I have to mention all that about the arcade because when you get down to the C64 version... <laughs> um, <laughs> Forget all that, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, please do. <laughs> Forget that. I'm going to turn now to the documents and documentation for the game, for the C64 game, because I think it's important. Because it's not, obviously, it's obvious what it is, but there are some nuances to the way it plays, which I think is worth explaining in their own language. So this it describes, so it says, Continental Circus Documents. And it says, your quest. Has a race ever been described as a quest? I think it's just, you know, <laughs> all right. No. So to qualify as a Formula One driver... That's your, that's that's the first. That's just a sentence. So this has clearly not been written by someone. Anyway, I'm just I'm going to try and bypass that. Experience all the thrills of the arcade original. Pausing for dramatic effect as you stretch your driving skills to the limit. Eight international circuits have to be conquered in a series of grueling races. Are you up to it? 
No. And then the next sentence, this is called behind the wheel. Your aim is simple, to prove to the racing world in general and to your <laughs> team manager in particular. Just in general. <laughs> in general. <laughs> that you have the skills and experience to drive Formula One machines, cars, Formula One cars. <laughs> Such honours are not easily earned. Only a handful of people in the world are allowed to compete at Formula One level and entry to that elite club is restricted to the most talented drivers. After years of racing, you are now ready to take up the challenge, a challenge that will entitle you to compete with the finest drivers, the elite of motor racing, a challenge known as the Continental Circus. Hmm. So you, you've become a Formula One driver then? Well, do you know what? Just try not to read too much in between the lines here. <laughs> it's, it's like, so all that preamble is like, oh, have you got what it takes? Clearly, <laughs> because I'm a Formula One driver. <laughs> yeah, it says after years of racing. Yeah, yeah so clearly well. I've got what it takes. So now it says, take the challenge, Adrian, take the challenge. The Continental Circus consists of a series of eight races, each run on a different track in a different country. That sounds alarmingly like Formula One, but you know what, (laughs) suspend it all there. To complete the series and earn the right to compete at Formula One level. So I'm not so, for, okay, I'm not, okay. So, so, so this is, I'm trying to just figure out the nuances here. So the Continental Circus is a series of races designed so that you're allowed to race in Formula One by racing in a Formula One race. I just... Caution, caution, there is danger. Eh, 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 <laughs> logic error, logic error. Anyway, um... Are you yeah, qualified so, to draw this car, to drive this car? <laughs> Prove to me that you're qualified to drive it by driving it. It's just stupid, isn't it? To complete the series and earn the right to compete at Formula One level, a driver has to enter the circus and finish races inside a qualifying position set for each successive track. So it actually works slightly different to your standard racing that you've got to just set qualifying times. All right, okay. In theory, I love that in this. In theory... Failure to qualify on a single track spells disqualification, in theory or in reality, because we know we're going <laughs> yeah, to does a race it, here. It does or it does it? <laughs> is it a theory? In theory it does, but it doesn't always happen. <laughs> the whole sequence of eight circuits has to be started again from scratch. Schrodinger's qualification. I know, Schrodinger's circuits. <laughs> However, drivers entering the circus are given four lives or credits. Are they? Are they? Are they? Should you fail to qualify on a track, you can exchange a credit for the opportunity to compete in another race on that track instead of being forced to return to the first race in the sequence. Right. Okay, okay. so you're given lives. Lives. All right, that, that's handy. And then this, the next section is called driving skills. Your car <laughs> has very simple controls, a high-low gear shift. <laughs> I've heard that about Formula One cars. <laughs> yeah. I've heard the dead easy to drive. Lewis Hamilton just sits there reading a magazine. Yeah, he, he doesn't bother him. It's just high-low gear. <laughs> I need to explain this section very carefully to you, Adrian, so you don't miss anything, because I think you know that it's very important that you understand this. So it says it has very simple controls. A high-low gear shift and an accelerator combine to control speed, just in case you wonder what accelerator means. <laughs> While left-right controls govern your position on the track. <laughs> govern you up. That's the most <laughs> stupidest way to turn, to steer. <laughs> and we're, not, we're not done yet. We're not done yet. Watch the clock that ticks off the seconds of race time. When it runs out completely, the race finishes and you are assigned your current position in the field. Extra race time is earned by passing checkpoints located around the track within a time limit. Avoid collisions where possible. They cost valuable time and can lead to pit calls. If the car is damaged, get into the pits as soon as possible rather than soldiering bravely on. Race time is stopped while you're in the pits, so getting things fixed does not harm your chances of qualifying, but if you continue racing with a damaged car, it will perform badly and eventually blow up. Of course, the going gets tougher the further you go. Each successive track in the circus sets greater challenges and watch out for the rain. It affects the car's handling characteristics quite dramatically. What rain? Yeah, and then it says use a joystick in either port 
Up is speed up, down is slow down, left is steer left, <laughs> right is steer right, fire is change gear. F3 turns on your sound effects, F5 turns sound effects on or off, which is weird, and music, and then shift Q quits. Okay. I think what you'll there find, you Graham, is left and right govern your position on the track. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this features an arcade-inspired loading screen. Okay. I say I'm just trying to be kind. Eight levels in total. The title screen is a high score track sequence. All the best players for all the rounds, their ranks, etc., kind of fly in and zoom her in, and you know, all very attractive. Has its own typeface. That's always good. It's always good. To, it didn't use the common off on there at that point. It's yeah, it's good. good. There's also a demo mode, which is on the screen for about three seconds. <laughs> eh, race stats. <laughs> eh, stop. It's like, okay, okay. Don't don't need to see that. No, you don't, don't need to see that, that demo mode. The game is a racer, I grant you. The C64 version is classically in the pole position tradition. So mm-hmm. the vehicle in the arcade and the way it looks, the vehicle is actually quite large at yeah, the bottom the, of the, the screen. The arcade looks great. It's yeah, great. And, this, and it's quite a big screen. It sounds small in resolution, but yeah. it's actually on a quite a big screen. So you've got quite yeah. a large view. And the yes, it's kind of got that kind of classic stripiness around the sides of the track. And it's, it's you know it's, it actually looks a little basic when you look at the stills. But there's quite a lot of movement, quite a lot of detail, and it's fast. It was famously quite fast to control, you know, and that was one of its key things. Plus, this featured damage and things, and your car could blow up and all that kind of stuff. Okay, fine, 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 fine. Mm-hmm. So the controls are fairly simple in this as well. All right, it's the same controls as pole position, pretty much, exactly, in quite a lot of other racing games. So I don't yeah. know why they've elaborated on it so much. Once you start the game, you'll be on the first track, which is Brazil. And as per the usual way in these kind of games, you must get to the checkpoint. So you could say that in the Arnie way, couldn't you? Get to the checkpoints Good. before your timer runs out. As you progress on the track, it will bend and contort accordingly, and other racers will amble in front of you in the now standard wandering Formula One CPU play away. <laughs> hit them or hit the roadside furniture and you will spin off causing damage and losing precious time. Do that too often, you cowl smoke, ignore that and don't, don't go in the pits when you're called because you can make pit stops and you will explode as has been pointed out in the instructions. And if you do that too often, of course, you'll lose the race entirely. So back to the beginning you go unless you're going to trade in a life. I wouldn't recommend you do that. No. The main game window itself has a text-based UI similar to the arcade, similar, detailing top score, current score, you're speeding kilometers per hour, your current remaining time, your qualifying rank and your current rank. Under the blue cloudless and clock cycle friendly sky in terms of C64 <laughs> CPU sits a sort of mini scrolling Brazil shaped skyline, I guess. Um, and under that, the bright green of the roadside and the now obligatory grey road and red and white edge markings. Now, okay, granted, that's not unlike the arcade in the way that it looks because that's how the arcade kind of looks all right, I guess. At the bottom of the screen is your smaller than usual Formula One car sprite, looking more like a buggy, really, or a Formula 0.0125, I would say. <laughs> Apart from when it um, crashes and it stretches. I mean, this this is a minuscule thing and it's meant to be the same one from the arcade, but the arcade one's huge, mm. and this isn't. It's kind of tiny. It's smaller than the pole position vehicle. In fact, it's smaller than almost all the other race car vehicles that we've come across. It's a bit mini, mi- miniature. Yeah. So the arcade at this point is starting to we're starting to diverge. <laughs> the graphics the graphics kind of fidget along the sides of the road. The usual signs there that is meant to help you they mean nothing though here. The arrow, these arrows and chevrons they won't explain the curvature and the shape of it at all. The, the bends are actually quite crazy. The crazy bends and chicanes. Weird clone trees that are handily enough planted exactly the right amount of raster cycles from each other to not really corrupt the screen. So this is, and that's the game. You race along, attempting to complete each course of the Formula One circus hey, um, until you win. <laughs> until you win or you don't. There's no excitement in this, really. No, because it's, it's not like you're racing against, well, you are against other players, but not really. Because you just this is more about clock racing. And that's not really exciting when it comes to Formula One. None of the arcades like that, but the arcade has all the arcade razzmatazz and fire. 
And you take all that away, you've just got, well, it's not great, is it? You know, this is a bit, bit, bit you know, bean tin, wasp in a bean tin kind of game. So I'm not a fan of these kind of racing games in particular, really, because they feel a bit old hat. And also, as, as I'll come to, there's already one in existence anyway. But the game's dreary. It's a dreary attempt at the arcade with literally no panache or thought at all. Wrote C64 game creation at best and a conversion devoid of arcade fire and the inspiration that drives it. This is basically a pole position clone for me. It's nothing like Continental Circus. Nothing. The only similarity is that it involves racing cars. And And I'm using that, you know, description liberally. Plus, as we've said many, many times before, Pit Stop 2 came along, stomped its foot on this on this genre long ago. And, this, and it's never been bettered on the C64, with the exception of maybe one game that I can think of, which I'll come to. There are some commendable things. I mean, it's not all, you know, bad. Do, they have put all eight levels in. Okay, fair play, they have. And there's hints of the arcade logic in the way that the time trials work. That's the sa- that is the same as the arcade. So what they've converted is what's in the arcade. So it's not like they've gone on some, you know, hogwild fantasy. But and, and I guess they have had to scale things down. But we're going to see later on another game that's an arcade version of Eraser, which is a completely different way of looking at things. Mm-hmm. So yep. this plays a lot like the Outrun game that we saw. It's a lot like Outrun in that way. It's a bit thoughtless and thankless and a bit daft and dreary and repetitive. The speed of the game is also pedestrian. This is a Formula One game. Now, the arcade is famously fast. This is famously underfast. So this is Formula <laughs> One cars, you know, and this, I mean, even in high gear, this is like Formula One car going... Did you see how fast it's supposed to be going as well? Like nearly yeah, 400 exactly. kilometers per hour. <laughs> yeah, you're not. You're not. And also, weirdly, even at that weird sort of slow speed, which is slow fast, as we'll call it, it still remains weirdly uncontrollable because the the way that the car steers is like pole position. So it steers like pole position did. So you overcompensate mm-hmm. for all the bends and fling and slide around for no reason whatsoever. And when you hit things, it's not good. There are no nuances to the play. You start, you race, you win or lose. Done. Okay. It's, it's you know, it is that. They may as well just call this race game. No, it's, it's, it's as bold as that and as boring as that. It's just a C64 Formula One game by the boring pole position numbers. Remember the magnificent Grand Prix circuit? Remember that? Yeah, I do. On, if you want to play a Formula One game on the Commodore 64, go and play that. Yeah. Don't waste your time with this nonsense. And I know it's an arcade game. Don't waste your time with this either. This is no more of an arcade conversion than pole position was. And at least pole position has the privilege of being older now. Go and get Pit Stop 2. I can tell you it's budget price right now. Well, not now, but back then. So it was out on budget. So it was two ninety nine, I think. Yeah. So you'd be you would have to be crazy to go into a shop and buy this for ten pounds when you could buy Pit Stop Two for three pounds and play it with your mates as well, which you can't do in Continental Circus because it's one player only. And I know I'm comparing apples for pears when I say Grand Prix Circuit and this because they're not in the same things, but they are Formula One games. They're both racing games. Well, one is and the other one is not. This is not. This is crap. So this is just nothing but wheels and a track. And so tie into our Untouchables theme. Yeah. Yawn is my last statement for this. Yawn, what about you? Did you love it? Yeah, no. God, no. I'm going to say this again exactly like you did because I keep saying it every time. Pit Stop 2 exists. So if you want to drive in this lane some five years after that game came out, then you better be doing something better or different. And this is not doing either, simply. This also bears no real similarity to the arcade version, except the name and that it's a driving game. It's weird how we've come to the same conclusions. We don't write these, by the way, talking about these. We just, we just come up with these. This is what it is. Now, I know the C64 isn't going to do just as visually, so why bother? Continental Circus, the arcade game, has a look. Um, it's replicated somewhat on the 16-bit games. Even the Spectrum game doesn't do too bad sort of thing, but this doesn't look, look nothing like it. And I, So why bother? Why bother doing this? If you want to do a racing game, save yourself some money and spend it on the development of a new one. That's what I would say at this point. Do something different. Do your own racing game. If it doesn't sell as well because it hasn't got the license, then at least you haven't forked out for that license. 
in the first place. So it probably balances out. Or maybe it doesn't. I don't know. <laughs> you know but, but if you made your own racer and you got a decent score, maybe people would buy it as a bit of a race because it's like thinking, and you that extra money that you didn't spend on the license, you could maybe give them more time to make it better yeah. and yeah, and all that kind of thing. Whatever. Whatever. This is a bland, bland racer offering nothing new. And the ups and downs of the tracks are about to be made completely redundant in this very episode by the other yes, racing game we're going to look at. I will say, the weird thing is this. So it's 99 races, isn't it? And you've got to get your way through. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which, the one thing, the weird thing that sort of, because Nintendo released it, recently released in their quest to turn everything into sort of a Battle Royale type thing, they recently released their F-Zero 99. Now, the F-Zero right. games are the futuristic racing games, kind of that 2D pixely thing, where yeah, you're, playing yeah, against, you're playing against 99 other racers, other people, and mm-hmm. all on the F-Zero track, battling it out, and you, you get quali- disqualified as if you're last in at certain points. And so there's a little, I'm not saying this is that, but it's weird that this is sort of saying, you know, this this is kind of like you're up against 99 races, kind of an old, just kind of a sort of weird parallel to how Mm. games now like Tetris 99 and weird games are coming along with sticking 99 and things like that. Anyway, I don't know. Just the attitude of everything back then, wasn't it? Convert everything. Convert everything to everything. Mm. Why? Don't. It's like the world went mad for a while for arcade conversions. I don't understand it. I don't remember back then going, though, I wish I could play this at home. Because I knew if I did play at home, it would be nothing like what I'm playing in the arcade. There was such a gulf in quality between the machines at the time. It's just pointless. Pointless conversion. I think that's the problem, though, is that these are what we're seeing a little bit now is 16-bit conversions, you know, other bread and butter. These are 8-bit conversions just, you know, for extra. There's there's some supplementary jams that you might find at the side of the table. <laughs> yeah. This is the apricot jam. Yeah, that, that have been opened and someone's rammed a knife in there after being in the butter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, uh, this is the mar- and, little and tubs the of margarine. No. Yeah, it's, that's what I mean. It's this is the, 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 we're now the also ran, so they're not the big they're not they're not the big thing either. So these are just kind of we might make money, we might not, but who cares? Kind of thing. Maybe that's the philosophy for these. Maybe I don't know. It's pointless conversion though. Another one. Another pointless conversion. We see seventy four percent though. Come on, no. I can only assume that they're giving these scores because they've got nothing to review. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Don't, I don't know, but it shouldn't have got seventy five percent, or maybe because it's yeah. you know it's who, who releases Virgin Virgin Mastronic won it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's not very good. Continental Circus, stupid name as well. Mm. Yep. There we go. Don't play that. Let's see if our next game is worth playing. Our last one, this part. <laughs> Firepower. Here we have Firepower. I'm glad you got this one. God. <laughs> Firepower. Oh, Blimey. full price. I will say, right, this is two-player two player capture the flag game. That's weird. Yes, That's weird it for is. 1989. That's weird. Is it? Um, <laughs> Did we have well capture the flag is a you know a mainstay now of most modern multiplayer sort of first person shooters and things. It's weird that you know yeah. that kind of thing. I don't. I can't remember any capture the flag games we've played for this podcast. No, I can't think of any really. That singular mode being a thing about you know two players against each other. Anyway, listen, tanks this though. Weird. You'd have thunk it. Mm. Not me. Anyway, it's firepower. It's published by Micro Illusion for nine pounds ninety nine. Okay. It's got code by Stephen C Biggs. He did Slam Ball, Sentinel, and Blue Max. Okay. Coding is by Stephen C. Biggs and Ken Grant. Ken Grant did Bump Set Spike, Five Aside Soccer, mm. and something called Pecos Pete. Okay. It's got graphics by Les Pardew, uh, and no one did the music because there isn't any. So <laughs> there isn't. It's a multi-load game, this, for reasons I cannot fathom. I don't understand, but we'll... Because it, it comes on two sides of a disc, supposedly. Again, for reasons I cannot fathom. I don't know. <laughs> Unless it's just the same game weird. on both sides. Well, it, it is weirdly. one of On the two discs that we had, it was one of them was a one of them was a single load version and the other one was a over the disc version. So one of them was just one file with the, with the game on it. 
Oh, right. I don't okay. quite know what was going on. So I don't know if that was how it came, but anyway, weird. <laughs> <laughs> it's very odd. To give some background to this game, it was originally released on the Amiga in 1987. Um, mm. And there is some interesting bits here. Then it was released on DOS in 1988 and on the Apple II and C64 in 1989. Interestingly, the DOS version, uh, this is where the capture the flag bit comes in interestingly, offered modem play. Ah, so you could play this curious. online against another person, which is quite impressive for 1988. So you have a capture yeah, the flag maybe. game here that's playable over the internet before it was the internet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah there's some kind of network here. Yeah. yeah. All of that is moot, though, when discussing the C64 version. It's like what you said about Continental Circus. Forget all that. <laughs> Just forget that. Yeah, yeah. It's all that interesting stuff. Yeah, forget all that. Forget all that. When the game first boots up, you have a choice with two massive icons for one-player game, for a one-player game where you play against a computer, or a two-player game where you play split-screen against each other. Once chosen, you get the most basic of title screens, where you get some boring credits in the Commodore font, and an option to view the instructions. You should read these as they're written by someone with no sense of humour and I don't I don't understand them. Yeah, the instructions had me in stitches. <laughs> yeah, they're written by someone with no sense of humour but are absolutely hilarious. These instructions, which are just a few screens of text, also require an, also require loading in. Why is this a multi-load? Why, Graham? Why is this a multi-load? <laughs> Good question. Where are my eyebrows? The instructions cover the game mode you have chosen and tell you what to do and are presented in a green font and a black background in a Commodore font in silence. It's like the most boring thing. Ooh, some home life. Once you've read through these, you get more loading before you can choose from three different tanks, which are your basic three different archetypes. So again, we're seeing some kind of weird sort of early multiplayer archetypal stuff going on here. Capture the flag, mode and play. You've got a heavy, you know, you've got one tank which is heavy and slow with more ammo, the all-rounder and the fast and weak one. You know, mm, this three archetypal yeah, multiplayer mode types. Interesting to see that here with those kind of multiplayer archetypes in display in the 80s. Once you've chosen your tank, there's more loading. And finally, the game appears in all its glory. Yeah. You, start to get, you start the game in your home garage. And the instructions at this point tell you to drive forward to leave the garage. Now, which way on a joystick, Graham, do you think forward is? <laughs> yes, you did what I did. You reversed into the back of your own garage, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, you, you press up. Up to me is forward. Yeah. Except no, yeah, you, the, for some reason, the garage is facing downwards. So down. You cannot see your tank at this point as well, remember. And you're actually facing down. So you need to move down to move forward. <laughs> It seems backward to me. But anyway. Down to go up, yeah. Because, okay. the, because the instructions say, control is absolute. <laughs> that made me laugh for ages. such a strange thing to say on that game. <laughs> it's just weird. I'm not sure what it means. Essentially, moving the joystick in the way the tank is facing will move you forward. And if you move it in the opposite direction to which you're facing, you'll reverse. You reverse. You turn by ro- rotating the joystick 90 degrees to move the way you are facing. So if you're facing left, you move it left to move left. If you want to reverse, you move right. If you want to turn to move up, you have to sort of go left top diagonal up right you know you can turn around last like ninja style yeah you can kind of turn around yeah 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 it's not a bad control system once you get used to it and essentially turning is relative to the way you are facing you just kind of get used to it um you can also shoot with the fire button that's it there's nothing special here makes sense the game world is presented in all its yellow it's very yellow this very it's yellow. All yellow and green glory on the left of the screen taking up about three quarters of the vertical view whilst the last quarter on the right is mostly empty aside from your map. I say map um, (laughs) and UI. The map is a featureless red square. (laughs) It is, yeah, with dots. (laughs) I'll come to differences in multiplayer later. With a black dot in the middle, that's you, that's you, that is. Underneath this is your fuel bar, which can be refilled by heading back to your home garage. Under this are your number of lives under a little tank icon, the number of men you have rescued, and the number of enemies you have killed. So the main aim of the game is to make it to the enemy garage and steal their flag and get it back whilst the enemy is doing the same. To capture the flag game, which again feels pretty new for back in 87, and is released on the Amiga. Also roving about the, the map, there are also men, just men, 
wandering around. Just men. Just men. They're also men to rescue about the map. And you can do you can rescue them by just driving up to them and stopping and letting them board the tank. You can then drop these off at first aid stations, and should you unload 15 of them, then you will get an extra life. Should you come across enemy men, you can run them over and squish them. The only bit of this I even paint, even small bit enjoyed, squishing enemy men. Leaves a little squish on the screen. Gruesome. Your tank is red. And your men are coloured in red and the enemy are green in single player. If you stand still for too long, then the enemy will launch helicopters to come and buzz you and shoot you. But they're pretty easy to shoot down themselves. As you make your way around the map, you'll see enemy turrets lined the way. Um, and these will shoot at you as you get nearby. Should you take enough damage, each time you are shot, a number of hits you can take pops up on the UI panel. This is linked to your stats when you sort of look at the tanks. If you take too many, then you'll be destroyed and you only have five lives to capture the enemy flag and you start back at your garage. That's essentially it. Okay. Mm-hmm. You can blow up the enemy turrets, uh, and you can actually do this without getting hit, as the turrets only fire at 45-degree increments, whereas you can get close and turn slightly to aim at more angles than they can. So you've got you've got 16 ways of turning, kind of similar to what we saw in that um, Living Daylights the other week, in the way you can yeah, sort of yeah, aim at that. Yeah, similar sure, sort yeah. of thing. Thus, as you progress with each tank taking out turrets, you probably die, but the next tank can get further as the turrets... They stay destroyed, and you can get closer to the, to the opposite base. So I presume what this is is you get as far as you can with one tank, blow up as much as you can, die, your next one gets further, and it's that kind of progression. That's what you're supposed to do. So that's it, really. If you're playing in multiplayer, then you both get to choose tanks, and instead of only five lives, you have unlimited respawns, and the game continues until someone has stolen the flag and returned to their base. Here the game is presented using a split screen. Each player's window um, is now half the screen on the left, so you've got three. So on the left three quarters of the screen, you've got a basic split screen showing the two the two views of two tanks. But and then on the right, whereas there was just the one map, the red map. Now there's a player two has their own map as well. So it's split across the middle. On the left is the play area. On the right is the map and UI. That's what it is. That's it. Um, still says the same shit though. Lack of nothing. Yeah. A, a green square with a black dot in it tells you nothing. Tells you nothing. So in theory, this sounds like it could be a bit of fun. Capture the flag, driving around, two players mm. trundling around, blowing up tourists. But but in practice, it is not. It no. is not. The game has multiple issues from the very outset. The presentation is dull and bare bones with a basic font, no music, and boring loading for no good reason. The instructions are helpful, I guess, but once read, there is no way to read them again. In case you want to check something, just go straight into the game. That's it. You better memorize these from page to page. But you don't need to memorize anything. It's just drive around and shoot stuff. But there's loads, quite a few pages to tell you this. In-game, whilst the controls are okay, the visuals are blocky and ugly. Bitty ground, poorly defined. I want to say bass relief style buildings, but they've got that kind of shading, a shadow inch top-down, direct top-down style sort of shading for shadow and stuff. But, you know, there's not really much in the way of shading. And there's just... There's things that I think are supposed to be trees, but I'm not sure. The turrets, everything. The sprites are few and far between. The tanks and helicopters look like something from a poor Siup game, as far as I'm concerned. The yeah. visual of this looked a bit like that. And the turrets and the way they explode is average at best with sort of character graphics. It's, they're not pretty. Yep. Then we have the scrolling, <laughs> which is jerky good. in both single and multiplayer modes. And when you're playing in two players, watching the two screens jerk around in different directions give you a proper twitching of the eye. Because um, I was controlling them both to have a look at that, and I was like trying to focus. I was like, "Ah, <laughs> my eyes, stop jerking!" The sound effects are the usual trundling of a vehicle, some helicopter noise, and a weak shot effect. Yep. The shells that you fire are a strange thing as well. They kind of just look like some weird. I don't know if are you firing Cannonballs. anything. They're just weird, <laughs> and the whole thing is simply ugly. It's just ugly to look at. The world itself is boring to navigate, and yet, although you may think having a map on the UI would be useful, it isn't. It's a red square, like I said, with a block black dot in the middle representing you. And when something is near, another black dot appears, but there's nothing else on it, and no indication where anything is on the map. 
So it's just trundling about for ages. You don't even know the direction what the enemy uh, garage is. Useless. You don't know anything. Um, I was just trundling about for ages, blowing up turrets and helicopters and getting deeply bored the more I played. I had no idea where I was going, nor did I have the inclination to really explore the world and try and find the enemy flag and get it back. You can press F5 to quit the game, which will, and uh, if you do this or when the game is finished, you'll get a boring screen of stats and then it's back to the start to do it all again. For the late 80s, it's an interesting curio, as capture the flag modes and objective-based multiplayer would be something that would come to define certain subgenres of multiplayer games way down in the future. Probably actually not too mm. far in the future, if you think about Quake and Doom and that lot coming only yeah, about four, yeah, five, maybe. five, six years down the line sort of thing. So and it's also interesting for being online on the DOS version. So there's, yeah, the weird. version does have some interesting bits. However, the C64 version has none of that, and it's a pointless thing, offering a pale imitation of all those other versions. There's very little enjoyment to be had here. It feels very much like a misguided and pointless release. Again, I'd show on C64 there's millions of people on that someone will probably buy it who cares drab dreary and boring should never be the hallmarks of a multiplayer tank game but they are all words that apply here I didn't like this it's just dull and point just don't work on this machine again and it's a big open map and it's just ugh, no I didn't like it what did you think yeah same crappy I mean uh, we've played tank games like this we had a couple we had one a while back that was similar to this and the tank was really super well defined and the graphics were quite good and the yeah. game wasn't exactly the same but you were wandering around as a tank shooting other tanks and you know this the idea of it being multiplayer and co-op player and, and all of that capture flag stuff all right fine but that isn't present here um what you have is you know awful scrolling rubbish graphics i mean come on let's be honest this is this it doesn't look like anyone really tried hard um and all of those problems are basically on the amiga version too so no it's just not good this is it the sound was clearly from some old game from 1982 or something i mean how on <laughs> earth was this full price it, this would be probably rubbish at Budget price, really? Yeah, it would be. Just, you know, poor gameplay. I get the idea is, you know, there's hints of what it could have been, but this isn't any of those things. Really crappy graphics. These stupid sprites. I mean, that helicopter that comes trundling across and <laughs> just, you know, this it's so sporadic and there's not a lot in it. And the background details, like you said, if they're not yellow, it's brown and it's not really good anyway. And that jerky scrolling is enough to give you a headache. This looks like a game from 1983 and it doesn't have the excuse of being from 1983. Um, so, yeah. I don't know. There's loads of better games than this of this kind of type. If you want to play a wander around as a tank blowing stuff up, there's loads of games that already that we've played. I refer you back to those. This is just shit. Don't play it. It's rubbish. No. 36%. I'd have given it less. Rubbish. Rip yeah. off that as well. 10 quid. So nope. No, 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 no. Yeah. Not, no. I don't think it's 36% worth of enjoyment here. And there we go. That's firepower. That's not a great set of games we've just played through. No. That's a, no, that's a poor, poor, poor showing and including a gold medal. But there we go. We're going to take a quick break and uh, just, you know, take stock of our situation here. Um, And we'll come back and we're going to do uh, film and TV um, from November 1989. So please do stick with us. And we are back. Film and TV, November 1989. It's nearly Christmas, but what were we doing in the grey, grey month of November? Well, on the 1st of November, ITV aired One Day in the Life of Television, Mm. a documentary filmed by 50 camera crews looking behind the scenes of British television on the 1st of November, 1988. Mm. Sounds interesting. Would you have watched that? Would you have watched it? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it could be quite interesting, I suppose, as intermediate and Yeah, looking back, but then you wouldn't have watched that. No, probably not. And it is just going to be full of angry people shouting at each other about lack of time or... 
What have you done? Or the camera isn't working or my DIN plugs aren't you know, slotting <laughs> in or whatever. What have you done? You've lost the news. It's this all it's going to be. It's just lots of sweaty people looking over control desks, pushing levers up and down and pressing, you know, camera two, over to camera three, now, that kind of thing. Yeah. So. yeah. You're looking at the wrong camera, camera, Jan. Jan, wrong camera. I mean, was there a general population of people that were curious about how television was actually made at this point? Maybe there was. There probably was. I think at this. I think at this point, though, we. Ha- I think we have to realise that it was. I think TV was still seen as a. It's a bit of a mythical sort of weird place, which is kind of you know people. Yeah, maybe. I don't think there was much in behind the scenes. You got you worked in it. And you were seen as kind of like, what are you working telly? Wow, that's amazing. How's it all work? It doesn't say they which whether it's BBC or or it, whether the crews are all ITV or whether it's sort of you know because it just says fifty camera crews and that could be could is that cross regional. If that's regional TV, can you imagine how boring that got. <laughs> Goodness me. We're here in the sleepy town of Loaf. <laughs> John, hold the box up higher. John, hold the box up higher. The camera can't see it. We need to see the box of pretzels. Hold it up. It's your things. It's a programme about you. <laughs> it is. I reckon there's probably a, many, a, many a shirt sleeve was rolled up as well in this footage. And the irony of it is that some of the people in that are still in the, doing the same TV programmes now that they were doing then. Probably. Um, 7th of November, MTV Europe broadcast the live programme from East Berlin, which were, mm-hmm. I don't understand this, which was succeeded in both hotels and conference centres that gave access to the channel for the first time. I don't know who wrote this on Wikipedia. It doesn't make any sense. Two days no. before the wall came down by paving the way for German reunification. So I think that essentially MTV Europe broadcasts were seen for the first time in East Berlin because they were obviously yeah. pushed over there during this stuff just prior to the Berlin Wall coming down I guess I mean I mean, that's got, I don't know for sure that's what it is but I'm wondering you know it says that MTV Europe broadcast that's there's a wide umbrella of things that that could have been it could have been at anything at that time and I wonder what the first thing was that there was over there my feeling is that it was Barbarella we cheer you up <laughs> that i think it was hasselhoff i've been looking for freedom i've been looking so long i've been looking for freedom Still the search goes on. oh hasselhoff it could have been the hoff but anyway the, you know it, the wall came down and i'm sure mtv europe took credit for that yeah well, well done, MTV. Well done, well MTV. Done, MTV. You, did well done. you did it. You did it. You did. You did. You did. Yeah. 20th of November, the CFAX service is relaunched to focus on news, sport, and current affairs. <laughs> Magazine elements are significantly reduced and are mainly restricted to the weekend. God. <laughs> Some exciting, exciting. thing. <laughs> what baffled me with that was, it's the phrase... Um, magazine elements. I was like, magazine elements in CFAX? All I remembered was news, sport, and current affairs on <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah, it's the new CFAX, just like the old one, only more yeah. boring. <laughs> only more boring, yeah. I mean, it's just that, I love that. It was mainly restricted to the weekend, you know, like like there was people sort of going, oh, damn it, oh, all, the, all the magazine elements are at the weekend. Oh. What are we going to do now at four in the morning? Job finder. Restricting the content of CFAX to any particular time seems counterproductive for a service nobody gave a shit about. No. But certainly at this point, anyway, apart from maybe CFAX holidays, nobody really even thought about it. No, I don't understand. <laughs> 22nd of November, the Stone Roses are invited to appear on BBC Two's The Late Show. During mm. their performance, the electricity is cut off by noise-limiting circuitry, prompting so singer Ian Brown to shout, Amateurs, 
Amateurs presenter, mm. has presented Tracy McLeod tries to link into the next item. The clip we'll put in the show I notes because the clip's it, on yeah. thingy. I, I kind of feel sorry for him because they're just getting into it and then it's obviously the sound goes off. But what's really, what's, what, there's a couple of things that struck me as odd about it. Firstly was the way that it went off. This is the BBC and this is, some, this is this time is a, is a, the BBC were putting on a show weekly of live music. So yeah, it's yeah. not like they weren't good at that thing and they kind of practiced it. You know, they knew what they were doing. But secondly, it's the way that the presenter of the Late Show just dives in front of them all just to immediately introduce the next thing. It's just a bit callous and a bit cold. She doesn't really apologise. She goes, oh, okay, we'll get you back in a minute. Okay, the next thing. And you can see he's really annoyed by that because she just literally jumps in front of him. She could have done that at any point anywhere else. It didn't have to be right in front of him as he's angry about the fact that music's gone off right in front of the stage. It's, it's really disrespectful. Yeah. Really disrespectful. And clearly it's because they didn't like the Stone Roses. They were clearly, you know, they didn't like the what they didn't like their swagger. They didn't like them. And that kind of, feels like someone's just gone now turn them off <laughs> turn this rubbish off Manchester. yeah it does feel like that it's like no we don't want them on here turn them off just make, make up some problems turn them off get rid of them so that's yeah. what happened it's not good but graham it was noise limiting circuitry so i mean it's just it smell it stinks of bullshit there's no way it was that this is the bbc in a recording studio in a studio you're gonna have loud record right loud music it would behoove the bbc to sit there and go no because of all the things that they should be good at recording live music is the one thing that they've been doing since the 60s yeah so you know right back to ready set go and all the other you know pre-pop top of the pop stuff and then all the other shows that featured it and they still do the fact that they said that it was that tells me that they just didn't like them terrible terrible way to treat them. do the stone roses have a reputation did they have a reputation for being particularly loud the music's not even that particularly loud. Well, I don't. I know it isn't, and it's kind of a softer song, isn't it? But I think Manchester had links with rave culture and drugs, and the yeah. BBC did not like that. And I think that they thought that they were leaning too much into that kind of that vibe, and so they just switched it off. Like, now we're not taking the risk because this could go in either way. It just feels that way. It feels like someone sat there watching them going, "Ah, no, this is too druggy." Beep, turn it off. <laughs> switch, switch the noise limiting circuitry on. That'll shut them down. <laughs> yeah, too druggy. It's too druggy. For us. This is, by the way, the same studios that had um, Led Zeppelin play live. Yeah, exactly. I think they're probably louder. And Status Quo and uh, Motorhead. And Saxon. No- <laughs> so where did you go to Saxon from that? <laughs> Mentioning these classic metal bands, <laughs> Zeppelin, Motorhead, and you go to Saxon. Because <laughs> it's the British. I don't know. Death Leopard probably played. <laughs> You're too late now. You can't recover from that. You brought the Saxon in. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Saxon. Goodness me. You'd be going to see Wolf's Bay next. I know you love a good bit of Saxon. <laughs> you, you deny it. No one's ever said that sentence. <laughs> and lived. <laughs> Mandrakes just appeared. <laughs> Did someone say Saxon? You don't mind a bit? You're not surviving my attention. 25th of November, Helen Sharman is selected as the first Briton to travel into space in a live program aired by ITV. She mm. was one of 13,000 people to apply for the chance to become an astronaut after responding to a radio advertisement and journeys to the Mir space station in 1991. It seems incredible that it took that long. To get a Brit in space? Yeah. Well, there's nothing to colonialise, is there? So I probably didn't <laughs> want to go up there. I claim this planet in the name of Britain. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> no, Johnny Foreign is coming in this planet. Thank you very much. I mean, it's pretty amazing, the whole idea of it. It just seems, it struck me when I saw it. I was like, 1981, that's, you know, that's crazy when you think, what, would you go to the moon in what, 1960, whatever it was, 67, 69. was it? 69, 69, mm-hmm. 69, 69. So it just seems odd that it took that long to get a Brit up there. But you know what? We tried catapults, trebuchets, <laughs> really strong throws. We showed some real good British pluck. <laughs> yeah, we did. 
We had loads of men in their sheds, loads of people, sorry, in their sheds. We built the biggest human triangle you've ever seen and tried to shove the top person up. We made a trampoline out of Scotland, but that, that still didn't get there, did it? No, <laughs> no, no. No, it's just, uh, you know, anything we tried never worked. Um, <laughs> we ran really fast. Yes. Turns out our pluck only gets us to the upper atmosphere, but not out the atmosphere. No, you just can't, can't pluck out. Absolutely, because we we tended we tended to keep passing out. Exactly, yeah, yeah. The milk bottles that we used for uh, helmets for the astronauts, <laughs> <laughs> the plastic bags, the, the Asda bags with eye, eye holes cut in. <laughs> Just put elastic around the neck hole. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. T- turned out they weren't vacuum proof. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Absolutely, we had bags out of Hoovers. <laughs> Should have followed the rules, shouldn't we? Yeah, yeah. Making yeah. their making their uh, suits out of uh, the old Hoover parts. Turns out that was a mistake. Absolutely, we just we just we, we just thought there was the old uh, sort of diving suits, the big ones with the big <laughs> round head and the glass thing in the front. Yeah, I'll get us in Look, space. You got to love a trier, and that's what we are, triers. <laughs> <laughs> we are very trying. All uh, right, some new shows. First of November, Summer's Lease. My knowledge of these has just gone out the window. It's like I don't recognise any of these anymore. No, same. The odd, <laughs> the odd one now. Very rare. Uh, what was this? Sad John Gilgood or something? He got a Primetime Emmy Award. Ooh. Yeah, it's, it, he, he was quite good in it. Apparently, um, you know, he got lots Must of awards, lots of plaudits. Soundtrack was apparently very good. I just no, I don't do these kind of shows. Certainly, didn't back in 1989. I'm like, no, 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 no chance. No. And yes, I mean, he was good in the Arthur films. He was the butler, wasn't he? Oh, of course he was. Yeah, that's the one. I tried to think what I'd seen him in because I, you know, John Gilgold's got such a reputation. But <laughs> yeah, so I said, I was like, oh, I was in the Arthur films, and that's what I've written. I was good in a lot of other things. <laughs> <laughs> Thing is, uh, he's that good an actor. He can play anything, and you wouldn't know it was him. So he could have been a table actually. lamp. Um, it's a method. His method. He stood, stood in his lounge for ages in the corner for about a <laughs> he year. Was Ro- he was Robert De Niro's <laughs> underpants in under, in uh, the Untouchables. Ah. <laughs> it's a role that he didn't relish, but you know, at the same time, he was working with the greats. He was working with the greats. No, second uh, of November, the Riddlers. <laughs> oh dear, the uh, Riddlers. Mossop and Tiddler, yeah. Yeah, it was uh, Neil Innes did the music for this. Neil it Innes. is him, yeah. Um, he yeah. did because he, he did the music for Monty Python, a lot of Monty Python he stuff. He, he wrote the uh, Knights of the Round Table song. He did. I have to push the pram a lot. <laughs> That's the one. And he was part of the Ruttles with Eric Idle. Ah, okay, that makes sense. Where he he was named Ron Nasty. And Eric Idle was called Dirk McQuickly. That name makes me laugh quite a lot. That's a, good, that's a good name. Good name. Well done. Well done. Golf clap for that. That's a good name. Dirk McQuickly. <laughs> they were sort of Beatles pastiche, weren't they? Anyway, but the Riddlers was just a sort of kids, whatever kids it was. with puppets. Were they puppet things? Yeah, I think they were puppets, yeah. yeah. Uh, 6th of November, About Face. Yeah. That's what I would have done when I saw that coming on TV. <laughs> yeah. Maureen Lippman in a, what was this? 12 unconnected half-hour episodes starring Maureen Lippman. Mm. Not for me. Not for me, thanks. Yeah. See, that description, which is from a wiki, explains nothing about it. It just It's just basically saying that the shows existed, they appeared with certain people in, and there was some of them done in November and some of them done in January. It's basically what it says. It's like, this is about, it's 12 unconnected half-hour episodes with Maureen Lippman. Each one featured a guest cast of familiar personalities. Who who were they exactly? <laughs> familiar personalities. That's all you need to know. <laughs> You've gone all Raids of Lost Ark. <laughs> the first set of six installments was broadcast. And then the second set. And since when has any TV show been described as a set of installments? No. <laughs> well, something tells me. She was obviously they don't doing know it. what that was about. <laughs> she was obviously doing it to pay something off. Yeah. Um, yeah. Also on the 6th of November was Happy Families. 
children's TV is dead to me from this time yeah, onwards. Yeah, yeah. So it's a kids' show that? about something or other. I don't know. Happy families. Eighth of November is the Free Frenchman. Yeah. No. No idea. <laughs> no idea. I'm assuming uh, it's not something. Not something you get with uh, you know a, a bottle of champagne, <laughs> a bag of chips, so, a bag of chips, <laughs> free and a free Frenchman. Every, every bag of oh, chips. Come on, come on. <laughs> Ah, oh, where on. are we going? <laughs> Down in the cellar with you, where there are other Frenchmen, yeah. <laughs> some of whom were very old. <laughs> yeah, some of whom were very old. Eighth of November is Biker Grove. Ah, Biker Grove. Oh, yeah. God, I hated that bloody theme tune. Biker, 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 Biker Grove. Biker. Grove. No, yeah. Anthony and Declan, isn't it? Their first it was, foray yeah. into the world. Yeah, it was. What were they? They were um, PJ and Duncan, weren't they? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, famous. They got they had songs out and everything to prove it. Yeah, they did. Yeah, yeah they became PJ and Duncan before they became whatever they became. And Deck before they became more <laughs> forehead than people. Yeah. Fifteenth <laughs> of November is all change. All change. Weird. Weird. My <laughs> weird alarm's going off. <laughs> this was really odd. What did was you, it? Did you watch the clip? Did you watch yeah. the video of it? Look, I don't know. It's basically a. It's a show where there's a family in the north and a family in the south who are relatives, I believe. And Frankie Howard is is plays a, a character that's died and is now an angel, and he's basically trying to see which family is worthy of his inheritance. And so he, and that's the kind of how it plays out. Weirdly, it's like a crap kids comic version of the modern TV show Rich House Poor House, where they actually take two families from opposite ends of the sort of financial show? divide. Of course, yeah, it's a, a real show. show. It's, it's Channel Five poverty porn isn't it? So it's in their catalogue of rich yeah. house, poor house, good job, bad job. You know, you get the idea, that kind of thing. And it's one of those. Um, and this, this is kind of a, done for jokes, but in re, but later down the line, this was actually done for real. And you get this rich house, poor house, where they take two people from the opposite ends of the income divide, as it were, um, mm. and make them live in each other's houses for a week, you know, to see what that's like. It, weirdly, that TV show seems obsessed with the rich people, or so they said, the people in the rich houses, are always business entrepreneurs who either own lots of property or have businesses helping other people set up businesses. It seems to be their mainstay. And the people who live in the poor houses generally live in council states in houses where they're struggling to make a good income or they, you know, their, their income is not necessarily great, struggling to pay the bills. They live in each other's house for a week. There's a revelation happens. The rich people go, you know what? Living in poor people's houses, actually, you know, let's be, let's be a bit more humble. Poor people, wow, living in rich people's houses is amazing. Wouldn't it be great if we had more money? They meet in the middle and they go, you know what? We're going to help you make more money. And they go, great, thanks. End of show. <laughs> Rubbish. Yeah. And they don't show the bits in those shows that should be shown when the poor people are doing a massive bog-blocking dump in the rich person's <laughs> toilet and they're trying to ram, get rid of it because it's glued itself to the bowl and they're trying to ram it down with a giant bog brush. That's the Chicago way. Just to tie it back to the untouchables thing. <laughs> On that note, 16th of November, <laughs> made Marion and her merry men. Yeah, yeah, I made. I remember that show. Yeah. Well, actually, no, that's wrong. I remember one episode. Pancake Day, <laughs> which you made me watch. It's really annoying. <laughs> yeah, it is. That's why I made you watch day. it. Pancake Day. Pancake Day. Oh, God, Danny. Danny, just go back to Red Dwarf, for God's sake. I knew as soon as you saw that, it would plant itself in your mind and now you're cursed with the same thing I have, remembering that stupid bit of that show. Pancake so, Day. Pancake it's Pancake Day. Pancake Day. It's p -p 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 it was written by Tony Robinson, which is... It was, yeah. You know, a bald from Blackadder, obviously, and it's clearly leaning into that because it's very similar kind of... It's kids' show, but it's very similar kind of notion of a, you know classically stupid characters interacting and doing silly stuff, more silly than Blackadder would be without all of the you know, sarcastic nonsense and stuff like that. But it is what it is, kids show. And it actually isn't actually terrible. It's 
for a kids show, it's not bad. It's all right. It's all right. It's it reminded right. me. I think it. I think um, horrible histories kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally that vibe. Totally, that. Yeah, yeah. You could totally see that. There's a line you could draw clearly between those two. Also, 16th of November, you could have watched Victoria Wood. Yeah, could have. <laughs> you could have. <laughs> it was never for me. It was never for me, Victoria Wood. No, it wasn't aimed at my demographic, I fear. Um, I definitely Now, I never found her particular. I mean, I know that she's a well-loved, you know, British lovey comedian, comedian, comedian. But um, I just didn't, it wasn't my thing. It wasn't my demographic, you know. I'm sure no. she's hilarious if you're, you know, of a certain type of demographic. But I, I yeah. never found it so. There was those audiences with Victoria Wood, weren't there? And with lots of celebrities yeah. being seen to laugh the hardest. I always find in those audiences. like Yes, just, isn't it? Just funny that, funny that. Yeah, an audience with, they did the same one recently. They had a Kylie, an audience with Kylie. And that was just a series of gleeful faces going, Kylie, you're so great. You know, yeah. okay. Didn't they do one with Adele as well recently? Yes, yes, they did. That was actually yeah. very good because Adele's an amazing singer, but it was the same, just lots of face shots of insert celeb, insert another yeah. celeb. Going, Looking shocked <laughs> oh, at how ooh, good Adele ee, can yeah. sing. It's like, why are you shocked? Yeah. Why do you think this is happening? <laughs> Adele's funny though, because the way she speaks, and this is no disrespect to Adele if she's listened to this podcast. Yeah, thank you for listening, if you do. <laughs> But the way she speaks doesn't match the way she sings. Oh, she's like some, you know, Cockney. All right, mate. Oh, true, <laughs> so, true. Which I love, love about it. But Victoria Wood, no. And I, remember, I remember for the advert she did for One Cal. Do you remember that drink, One Cal? Vaguely. One, yeah, very, it was a drink vaguely. that had one calorie in it. So yeah. yeah, one calorie. Why bother? Why not make it no cal? Well, exactly. What was the point? And it, you know, water essentially is what it yeah. was. Yeah, exactly. Especially <laughs> back then. Anyway, nineteenth yeah. of November, you could have watched Prince Caspian and the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. That started. This is your thing because you're the Narnia. You know, you're the Narnia fan. I read I read the Narnia books when I was twelve, thirteen, fourteen. I got them all out the uh, Wicked you're an Library. I got them out. I got them out the Wickgift Library and just read them because they they had them in the school library and I borrowed them and read okay, them. Okay, that's good. Good that you did that. Yeah, it is good, but I didn't watch these. I just found the yeah. um, people who were acting in them very annoying. And to be fair, I was always a big yeah. fan of the cartoon, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe cartoon. Uh, if yes, it didn't look yes, like yes, that, I didn't want to know as far as I was concerned. That's fair. Can't argue with that. That's fair. I didn't like them either. All I knew was that when this appeared, there was going to be some kind of discussion about animatronics on Blue Peter because <laughs> it <laughs> happened every time. <laughs> was there was i took a screenshot because you obviously linked to the thing and there's a screenshot and looks like aslan's about to eat his creator yeah it, which makes me think of no but no um whilst the height of, <laughs> height of mark curry's belt is off the charts yeah he's dressed in look is look at his colors the color scheme's gone wrong it's all color on the left and then it just goes like a like a computer from the late 80s on the right it's all brown and green he's very exactly. rustic even his Honestly, hair, I yeah. mean, he's, he's obviously a ginger lad. So he just all blends into one melange of sort yeah, of rustic colours. And just don't wear your belt under your nipples. It's just not, it's <laughs> exactly. not a good look. It's not, it's a, not good a good look, 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 no. And also yeah. as well, uh, did you listen to the interview? This is why they're uh, behind the scenes. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> it's not very interesting. It's not interesting, is it? And it's just it's an animatronic line. <laughs> it took us quite a while to make this and we had to, it was quite hard and we had to do it. It was like, oh, for God's sake. Yes. We studied talking lions in the jungles and talk, <laughs> and we found that the mouth movements are very difficult to articulate. Was that because they don't talk? Yes, principally. <laughs> yes. And then they had the guy with the controller, close-up shots of the yeah. controller being moved. Anyway. It's all CG nowadays. He won't bother with that nonsense. <laughs> yeah, classic Blue Peter. Yeah. 26th of November, there was the ginger tree. Never heard uh, of it. No, no, no. Although this note you made in the middle of this is quite amusing. What, what's this about? <laughs> 
So it was the first high <laughs> the first high definition serial to be made for the BBC, although it was never broadcast in high definition or given a high definition release of any kind. <laughs> which begs the question, why did they do it? <laughs> There was nothing that you could even broadcast a view high definition back then. They had CRT TVs. What resolution were they? 48576i? Yeah, exactly. What did they mean by high definition, though? Because they just said it. They could have said that and nobody would have known, right? Because nobody could watch it on anything. So it's like, oh, the, no. the definition on that is so high, you won't believe how high it is. Well, how high is it? Well, high. It's like when you go around to someone's house and they've got a high definition telly and they're like, oh, it's amazing. It's like, you're still watching SD yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got hooked up with an aerial. I remember when the first HD scenes come out. <laughs> I'm the same though. I mean, I've got a, like a 4K TV, but my eyesight's so crap. It's really 720p for me. <laughs> for me, it's back to washing machines. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. <laughs> That's what you, often you stood staring at it, thinking that is the TV. That's how exactly. bad your eyesight is. This channel's are rubbish. Though, actually, to be fair, the, the quality of the programs is about the same. <laughs> the plot, it's just going round and round. Don't stand it. <laughs> Plot. It's plot. just go round and round. Don't stand it. Don't stand it. That's the worst joke you've ever made. <laughs> <laughs> and I've been on I've safari. Been on safari. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't think it was that bad, uh, but you're probably right. Ah. <laughs> 29th of November, Black Eyes. Oh, it's all getting saucy now. It, there's lots of sauce in it, what's coming up in the next few, next Ooh, few bits. Very there's, saucy, there's quite, yeah. quite a few bits of saucing that's coming up over the next next half hour or next few minutes or so. Uh, Black Eyes was Dennis Potter's next TV show um, after he did The Singing Detective. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, there was quite a furore of it, wasn't there? Because it was uh, just a just woman a walking around in a basque. Well, that was that was the one of the relatively lighter weight moments of that show. It, it that's was true. quite graphic. It was, was quite graphic. I just thought it was arty crap. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I did not watch all of the show. I just watched the parts that I needed to watch. <laughs> the pertinent points. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. This was secretly recorded in our house onto the, the videotape <laughs> and then uh, watched back later to see. And that's why I say, you know, when the, in, the time indexes for the rude bits may, have, may as well have just been put in the Radio Times entry for teens with video <laughs> recorders because <laughs> you were going to just record it and then watch it back for the boobies. That's what you're going to do. That's so, which kind of, I suppose, Dennis Potter, you know, in the interview, because there's a really good interview with him about the TV show Brimstone and Treacle, which was in 1979, because he principally had the same problems no matter what he broadcast on TV. Somebody went, that's really rude, that is, every single time. <laughs> so he just thought, right, you know what? I'm going to get mega rude then, fine. But his, his, his whole argument is, ironically, around the fact that what he's making is arty crap and not, you know, soft porn. And in that particular interview, he's got that guy from the, what's it called, show, you know, the one who sounds like he's got a permanent cold. Oh, Melvin Bragg. Melvin Bragg, sort of interviewing him. It is, it is a good interview, and his rationale is quite sound, actually, because he said, look, I'm an artist, and you know, I'm doing arty stuff. So. Was it on the South Bank show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it is show. good. It is good. However, it is just, you know, boobage, TV boobage, and team <laughs> fodder, that. <laughs> yeah. Team fodder. <laughs> to be fair, it's like, I'm just making arty crap. I mean, it's, it's a spinal tap argument. It's a fine line. <laughs> yes. <laughs> is it arty is. crap, or is it soft porn? Eh. Exactly. The minute the... The, the popular press at the time labelled it soft porn was the minute my eyebrows were raised. I'm like, really? <laughs> Is it? <laughs> I, I never had any predilection for watching any Dennis Potter shows particularly, but when that meant, those two words were mentioned, I was like, hmm, I may have um, to investigate this because a, a teenage boy. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm going to record this programme called Black Eyes. What's it about? Our boxers and you know, probably that. All right, all right. <laughs> uh, films. After that, films. that's all the TV. Films. films. 3rd of November. Films. 
Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers. Yes, yes, indeed. Hmm. Now, do I have this com- confused with uh, Halloween 5? Well, it depends on whether you know your numbers, because 4 comes before 5. I know 4 comes before 5, but what was the one where I made my great joke when he kills someone and the blood goes on the sheets? Made Gary laugh for ages. That was 5. Is that 5? I'm sure that was 5. Well, All right. it- it could have been four, because I might not have been there, but I, I well, seem you were to remember there, it. We were watching it in your bedroom. It's five, then, definitely. It was five. Because we were watching it in your bedroom, and you kill someone, the blood gets on the sheets, and I went, oh, I shall never get that out. Yeah. yeah no, <laughs> I, actually, that might have been four, actually, thinking about it. That might have been four. Gary would have to be here to clarify that. Yeah, because you said you were watching it at Mark Fisher's house. I don't remember that. We watched the original pirate version at Mark Fisher's house, which that Gary got, but that doesn't mean to say we didn't watch it again later with you. Ah, right. Just, okay. That was the first time we watched it, and it was crap quality. He got it from the Alan guy. Do you remember Alan? Not your brother, but no, he got no. it from the Alan guy. Yeah, yeah. Who was that mysterious guy who just, you know, knock on his door, he'd open his door. <laughs> we don't we don't know, but what he did provide was amazing pirate videos, of which that was one, and the quality was, you know, squint a lot. Yeah, filmed in, a, filmed in a cinema off a thingy, wasn't it? Off, yeah. a, off a camcorder at the time, you know, yeah. a camera, which was dreadful. Crazy. Dreadful yeah, quality. Crapo, crap. Actually, it was one of the better crap quality ones, but um, yeah. still crap. But it's then, but then we saw it. You know, we didn't go to the cinema to see it. We saw it on you know someone's house, which is kind of crazy at the time. You know, it's amazing that Gary was able to get stuff yeah, like yeah. that. In all fairness to him, but it wasn't a great film, was it? No, um, wasn't. It was a bit of a bit of a misstep as far as the Halloween's yeah. went. Well, it so. introduced the, the that kid, the daughter, didn't it? The the nephew, or the niece. Sorry. Yeah, it did. Who had a mysterious connection to Michael and uh, yeah. just yeah. 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 Wasn't a very successful follow-up because it's the follow-up to Halloween two, not Halloween yes, three, of course. Halloween which, three, which no. I was hoping it would be the return of Connell Cochrane, but no, not no, because they because three was a flop on it, so they returned back to yeah, the uh, serial killing of Michael Myers, and they yeah. went off quite well, didn't it? To, to about, did it get to about number ten, didn't there or something? But they still, well, they recently only recently released the last one, didn't they? So it's the Halloween no, kills. Last year. Yeah, it certainly did. It kills you, kills any brain cells oh, so you have bad. watching it. So bad that film. Awful awful but that, th- this was a return to like you say to michael myers the stabby stabby and all of that it was oh they upped the ante a little bit on the violence i think i think they didn't i, th- I think they i think it was toned down from two. Oh well maybe it was i, I'm, I have to say I my remember that a, lot of, the, a lot of the killings were sort of like knife raised and then you'd see blood across a wall you wouldn't actually see anything i don't know i'd have to watch it again and i'm not going to that's how the blood got on the sheets yeah, yeah. I mean, I can't remember much about it, and I certainly can't remember how it ended. But no. No. if it went the way of Jason films, where he got blown up and someone stabbed a pencil into a beating heart and all and a bit <laughs> into it, and it all got a bit weird. It didn't go that way, I don't think. But I don't think so. No. Also, in November, if you didn't fancy that that stuff, you could have gone and seen the Rainbow. Don't go and see the Rainbow. Although it, is, <laughs> it, it does get a little rude. What Jeffrey and Bungle? Yeah. Well, it's yeah. It's not. I mean, if it was Ken Russell's The Rainbow, can you imagine? <laughs> Paint the whole world with Ken Russell. I think, uh, yeah, can you imagine that? Ken, Ken Russell's rainbow. No. I don't want to think about it, actually, because I've got horrible images r- rapidly trying to take over my mind. But the film is just a load of badly made perverted crap. So just avoid yeah. it because it's like most Ken Russell films. That's how you could describe m- mostly all of them. Yeah. Um, if you didn't fancy either of those two, you could have gone and seen Two Moon Junction. You could have. <laughs> you could have. <laughs> well, it's a bit rude, doesn't it, at this point? It's getting a bit well, rude. see, I remember this film because of A, Sherilyn Fenn. I mean, amazing yeah. looking. And she's got blonde hair in that, which she didn't have in many other things. No, not, not in um, Twin Peaks, no. B, of course, you know, the naughty bits because there's a lot of those in this. Lots of kind of, you know, squeezy, squeezy and, you know, up against the wall kind of stuff. And then it's uh, and it was very very popular, very popular, very. I can't emphasize the very enough in the video shop with a certain demographic. Now, if I try and explain <laughs> that demographic by this other notion, this was one of the most returned unwound films of all time. Why? Well, I bet you can figure out why because this film. <laughs> 
never got wound back to the start. It certainly got wound back, not to the start. In fact, this tape eventually got worn out in Lord. So there you go. Oh, my Lord. It was directed by Zalman King. Zalman King? Zalman King. What else did he do? Wild Orchid, Red Shoe Uh, Diaries, Delta of Venus, Women of the Night. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I've seen a recurring theme to his work. Hmm. Novelties, party tricks, and <laughs> yeah. two milk. <laughs> two milk, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> 10th of November, you could have gone see New York stories. Yeah, Woody Allen, not very funny in this, quite embittered. He started to go that way. And this is kind of when Woody Allen films lost their humour and they're just kind of just am- him rambling and ambling about horrible stuff and it's all a bit awkward. Brown sauce is in it because we always thought he looked a bit like Woody Allen in this <laughs> Certain oh, points, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Uh, he did I don't bit. remember the story, but I'm sure it's full of very an- anxious conversations. And I don't know what's what's going. I'm just a murderer. Unlike films, like unlike some of his other films, you know, where they're quite funny. This one isn't. No, it's just just not. No, I don't think I like much after um, everything you always wanted to know about sex, but were afraid to ask. If I'm perfectly really honest. Yeah, yeah. But his early stuff. I mean, Zelig bananas. They were good. Um, yeah. Yeah, Bananas is good. Uh, 17th of November, you could have gone and seen Heathers, and you should have done, because it was really good, and it's still it's really good. It's a good, good film, that. It is. I've, I rewatched it fairly recently, because I've been going through a bit of a rewatch of some of this stuff. And I com- realised after, well, not after, I, I, during the first, you know, opening scenes, I should I say, that I'd completely misremembered this in such a catastrophic <laughs> way that it was actually a completely different film to what I remembered. Right. So, what did so you remember? Well, I'd amalgamated several films into one, none of which were this. Oh, so right. I had bits of uh, just too many teen of movies and movies of that type, high school movies and things like that, but none of which were anything to do with this film. It's weird. No, this was the start of this sort of anti-teen film, wasn't it? Or this sort of, this yes. is a teen, teen film coming out of sort of Breakfast Club and the John Hughes kind of teeny sort yes. of stuff and then becoming yes. satirical and biting and the genre was starting to eat itself. Mm. So this is the... This is the the mock part, yes, the, yes, the, genre, the so. genre loop, should we say? Yes. But it is very good, and it's a and really, I mean, I mean, they had careers, but I, there was always a sort of thought at this point that this was going to be the start of Winona Ryder and Christian Slater's star-studded career. I th- there was talk of Christian Slater being like the new Jack Nicholson at the time. I seem to remember. Yeah. Um, and Winona Ryder, obviously, they both went on to thing. They both went on to other things. Winona Ryder doing Dracula and stuff like that, and uh, Gale Interrupted and Reality Bites and all those kind of things. Christian Slater, what did he do? He did that. Did that John Woo film, didn't he? Broken Arrow. Yeah, he did, unfortunately. Yeah, that ain't good. And that, oh, what was the radio one he did? I can't remember his film. But he didn't, Christian Slater, but obviously they both had various personal issues and personal sort of things that went wrong in their personal lives, which kind of stopped their uh, sort of careers a little bit, I think. We know Riders has come a back a bit recently, and they both kind of come back and they're sort of doing some interesting TV shows. Christian Slater's good in uh, Mr. Robot. Um, yes, is in that, yes. and we know the writer is good in Stranger Stranger Things. Yes, yeah, she's quite good in that. So and she's and she's, she's Spock's mum in the new Star Trek series films. Isn't she, she is oddly, of course. Heather's has gone on to, of its own has gone on to its own things. It's a musical and it's a TV show. So. Oh really? Okay. Yes, it is. Yes, very modern, okay. modern musical and a modern TV show based around the same thing. All the high school girls called Heather and all that. Same thing. Mm. Yeah, it's a good film. It is good. Still worth watching. If you didn't fancy that, you could have gone seen Pet Cemetery, which I did at the time. I went to see this at the cinema. I never went saw it at the cinema. I wish I had off actually. Look in retrospect, so. I did. Um, yeah, it's just, it, and it's as you've written. It's okay. It's all right. This, I seem to remember it being okay. It's a good book. It's based on a good book, and this is a decent adaptation of that book. It's not too bad. Um, Starred Herman Munster, who gets his ankle sliced in a really horrible moment. Yes, yes. I remember, uh, vaguely remember it. But I I remember watching it on video many years later. Gets his Achilles heel sliced. Really painful. Not that old chestnut. Yeah, it's like, oh, 
but it's, it was new for the time. You're like, oh, that's painful. Ooh, he fall, he falls know, over, but sore. he falls over in a Herman Munster way. He goes, oh, <laughs> he doesn't do that, I don't think. Well, maybe he did. Chest first and then smashes the table <laughs> when he's got two pints of beer in his hand. <laughs> oh, yeah, we saw a, a giant fall. We did. Uh, 18th Twice. of no- <laughs> Yeah. The thing with Pet Cemetery though is when Stephen King could finish books. Because if you've read if you read his book on writing. No, and I never will. It's a good book, actually. He talks about his sort of style of writing. And he's basically what he does is he doesn't plot anything. He just writes and just lets the story go wherever it wants. So he has an idea at the beginning good. and just lets it go. The problem with that is that everything after Dark Half, he doesn't know how to have an ending. He's got mm. no endings. His, en- his endings are always terrible. That's because there is no he comes up with a great what if, but then the back end yeah. is like, yeah, go on. He's like, oh, I don't know, aliens. Yeah. So what? Yeah, exactly. It's best to have a plan where you're going. I think so anyway. That's my, I mean, what do I know? He's a, he's a multi-million billion dollar thingy. Yeah. What do I know? <laughs> well, thing is, I think it's just a method, isn't it? And there's different methods of acting, there's different methods yeah. of writing. Yeah. So maybe that's just his way. And like you say, I guess if you plot your books and plan it, then your chances of success are higher. If you do it randomly, then chance, you know, your chances are 50 50. You're going to end like up it. in a, oh, what, yeah. what, what is all this? And this, he had currency at this point because the life percentage of his early books did have endings. So, yeah, exactly. Stalem's Lark, Carrie, mm. Pet Cemetery, Shining. Yeah. They're all excellent stuff. And so, Such but, a good book, The Shining. So now it does lead me neatly, though, to see what you thought of the remake of Pet Cemetery, the recent make of Pet Cemetery, because I, I think it's very, very good. But I right. think it's pretty good as well. Yeah. Yeah, I thought some yeah. good ideas and stuff in it, some really nice moments, and sort of turn it on its head a little bit as to what, you know, what, what, what where you think it's yeah. going. Yeah, and quite brutal, and not, yeah. and, it, and it's and it's actually quite a, not just brutalism in, in that kind of cinema, in horror movies sort of way. So it's brutalism, but not gory, although there is violence in it, but not like, Splatoony gory. It's actually thematic, dark violence in it, and uh, consistently so all the way through. Nothing happens in it nice. It's all dark. It's all grim. It's just grim thing after grim after grim yeah. after grim, and and it piles on piles on the grimness to the very grim ending. And it, it's relentless. And that's not often you come across a film. There's no not like there's any levity in it at all. There's no com- comedic parts in it. it. It's just relentless, nasty stuff from start to finish. And I admire it for that because not many films can hold that together. Mm. Not many films do. That one well, does. That's, that's the conceit of the book, isn't it? I mean, the book is not the, the the way the book goes is not a pleasant story. No, it's not. It's not dealing with. No, I don't mean. Ple- yeah, and, and I, I get that. What I mean is, like, um, in terms of the film, yeah, it's a good adaptation, but it's more like just often films pull their punches a little bit um, mm, because yeah, you know do, because yeah. the audience can only sustain so much horror or terror or both. So it's, oftentimes you'll find movies have a little bit of levity or a little bit of something as a relief just to, you know, to build up the tension relief and then they build it back up again. That does, just does not stop from the minute it yeah. starts to the minute the nasty things start to happen right the way through. It's just continually bleak. And I find it quite doomy. It's one of those films that when you watch it, you feel a bit doomed, a bit doomed out. Not many do that. Another one that's similar to that is Sinister. Yeah. Yeah, Sinister's exactly really that, bleak yeah. all the way through, just them home movies. You sat there watching going, oh God, someone make a joke. <laughs> and that's what I mean. So when movies do go relentless like that, and the um, thing is similar to that, actually, Hereditary is similar. In yeah. that it's just continually piles on the doom. When they do that, that overwhelming sense of doom, really, when it's conveyed correctly, and all the characters in it, their, their situation is not only hopeless, but you know, you know it is, even though you can see them trying to work things out. You know it's not. Thing is, thing is, films are a bit like that as well. The guy that did them, Get Out, and um, you know those sort of films. Not so much the last one, which was still horrible, but not last much the last one. But mm, yeah, you know, nope. But that I like that idea of it, and so it it just struck me because it 
does the exact opposite of that. It has those levity. It has those moments where it goes silly and, and tries to apply that relief. And, and if it hadn't have done that, if it had kept that consistent darkness, it would have been far, far scarier. But they have mm. to have the silly moments in it, you know, and the silly little one-liners and throwaway comments and stuff. Same with um, Blair Witch as well, I think. Yeah, yes. If you're going to do it in a horror movie, you know, and do it relentless, you know, because yeah. that's the best way. Do it duissimo. Yeah, yeah. Um, 18th of November, you could have seen Quest for Love. Quest for Love. Don't, Never heard of it. No, no. Looks actually looked pretty interesting, but no. If you didn't fancy that, 20th of November, you could have gone seeing Les Enfants de Désandre. That's good. I don't know if I pronounced that right, but you know. Yeah, the infants of something or other, innit? I pre- yeah, presume so. Children of, you know, I don't know. Anyway, yeah, two reasons to watch that. Emmanuel Bert, or Beat, and Emmanuel Beat. I don't know you pronounce that, actually, but that, her, them. <laughs> okay. If you're ever in doubt, because... Obviously, times you know times are times are changing. But if you ever doubt how pretty she actually is, go and watch the first Mission Impossible. Mm, she's very very attractive she's lady. Just yeah, she is beautiful. Yeah. If you didn't fancy that, actually, sorry, no, twenty later, twenty fourth of November, you could have gone seeing Back to the Future Part Two. So, okay, this feels like it's one of those films that gets a bit overlooked. And I sort of looked at the little sort of explanation because we sort of, we have, we obviously, Eddie and I chat in our little agendas about little things that we think about things. And I actually completely agree with you. I think the problem with this film is that everyone felt like maybe the story was just complete enough. And then this adds loads of complication. <laughs> and it, the first one was quite complicated. This one's like mega complicated. Yeah. Because <laughs> the, the first one ends with them just flying off in the DeLorean, doesn't it? it yeah, because just... he says, your kids, Maddie, it's your kids. And then he goes off in the thingy, doesn't he? Yeah. Does that actually happen in the original one? Yeah. Yeah, he flies right, back yeah. at the end. Yeah, he, he, he watches the professor zoom off in the distance after he's put his rubbish into the car. And, and then he goes, where we're going, we don't need roads. Then, yeah, then another one appears and it's the, and he goes, your kid's baddie. He's got yeah. to do something about your kids. Yeah. Something and then like they that. fly off. But everyone was like, okay, that's cool. They're going to have to do something else. We didn't need another film maybe, but they did go and make it. And they made two, didn't they? And they made they them back to back. That rare, this is one of the first films I guess mm. that was actually made as a two-parter specifically to be back to back, wasn't it? Yep. Six months apart. Yep. But it is a good film and it is convoluted mm. and people do get confused yeah. by it. But yes. I think that people at the time, I don't think were like, I've got to come back in six months and pay another cinema. Maybe. It's a cliffhanger. Yeah. What? Just show me the bloody film. Because yeah. this was a proper cliffhanger. This was not, the story wasn't finished. Back to the Future finished. Yeah. Um, I suppose the closest I can say, maybe at the time, Empire. I suppose yeah. Empire and Return of the Jedi would have been similar. But they were three years apart. They felt yes. like, yeah. oh, it's a new film. It don't really matter. But this felt like, Oh, I need the rest of the film. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And knowing that it was coming six months later, I think maybe that had people going, mm. and then it became a Western for the third one, which I think people were a bit like, eh. Yeah. I mean, um, there's a few things, the few things that to note about Back to the Future Part Two is there's an amazing series of making of, obviously, mm. videos online. There's loads of, but go and watch the film, go and watch the, a couple of ones that I'll put in the show notes about how they did some of the amazing special effects sequences that are in that. Because this still is just before any of the real CG stuff is in there. Yeah, there yeah. are some amazing split screen, clever things. Because oh, obviously God, Michael yeah, J. Yeah. Fox plays multiple multiple um, parts in this. And at certain points he's interacting with himself and handi- handing himself objects across a table. Yeah. And, and there's a really good explanation in both Corridor Crews, one of their videos, I think. And there's another guy in line who's gone right the way through all the Back to the Future movies and sort of takes apart the effects of how they did them practical and otherwise. And it is that particular, there's some sequences in that that are jaw-dropping in how they figured it out. So it's worth checking them out. I th- yeah, this is good. I think 3 does it better as well, doesn't it? They improve it for yeah. 3. There's oh, some yeah, stuff yeah. in 3, which is ridiculous. Mind-blowing. 
absolutely mind-blowing yeah, how they do really some clever. of that stuff. But, it, you know, it, they're good. I mean, all the Back to the Future films are good, all of them. Yeah, none, of them are. none of them are bad films. And, I, there's, you know, there's, I like the recurring jokes, the, you know, the manure in the mouth in every single one. Yeah, you know, there's yeah. all those moments throughout all of them. Loads with Clint, of Clint Eastwood. And there's loads of bits and bobs. So they're just great films. And this was, I did go to see this at cinema. And I do remember at the end going, oh, God. But I remember going six months later to see yeah. Back to the Future Part 3 and was... That was all right, but I think maybe some people didn't like that idea that it was half a film. Yeah, I mean, watch it for the Easter eggs because there's loads of them. There's loads of loads if you because you can watch that film fifty times, and every time you watch it, especially between two and three, um, and yeah. there's parts where things happen in the past or things happen in the future. Or, sorry, things happen in the past that when they go into the future part have changed it. Obviously, that's the nature of the film. But there's really subtle little things that have changed. So I think there's one point when the three, the two Pines Mall, he crashes into the pine tree, doesn't he, in one of them, and he knocks it down. Yeah. So then in the future, that becomes the single Pine Mall. And things. there's, there's really clever yeah. little things like that all the way through, stuff like that. There's loads yeah, of them. Really it is good. good. Really good. Um, and if you didn't fancy that, you could have gone and seen Field of Dreams. It's a bit Kevin oh, Costner yes. heavy show, heavy episode, this, isn't it? He's totally in the zone, isn't he, at the minute? Costner is out there doing it. He's doing it, yeah. He's being untouchable in a field of dreams. So this was his uh, his baseball, another baseball film with Kevin Costner in. His bulldog yes. and things like that. That was a baseball one as well. Um, yeah. If you build it, so guy out in the Midwest gets a, here's a ghost telling him to build a, a, a baseball pit, baseball field out in his backyard or something. And he builds it, costs him lots of money, he gets knocked, but then the ghosts of an ancient, of an old baseball team turn up and one of them is his father who he manages right. to reconnect with. That story, if I remember that rightly. Yeah, principally it, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Been ages since I watched it, so it's pretty good. It's what it is. I mean, I remember it more for the pastiche in Wayne's World 2 with the, right. sort of, with the guy goes into his dream and says, you know, put on Wayne stock. If you, if you book them, they will come kind of oh, yeah, so yeah. stupid. Yeah, but you know, but yeah, it's a, it's a uplifting film. It's a, it's one of those yeah. feel, it's a feel good movie. That's what good it is. Good soundtrack to Field of Dreams as well. Yeah. 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 And it's Costner's cost. I always find Kevin Costner pretty watchable in whatever he's in. Yeah. He's yeah. a watchable I mean, this actor. Pre- this, this is all before Dances with Wolves, isn't it? So he's starting to build up his big, Hollywood profile here. He seems to be in everything because, of course, he's in The Untouchables as well, just to link it back to The Untouchables. That's show. what I said, yeah. That's why it's a Costner-heavy show. There it is go. very Costner-heavy. Unfortunately, this is the closest we'll get to him because don't play the game and expect to see him. <laughs> You'll see his familiar, but not him. <laughs> You'll see his simulacrum, but not him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like Costner. Seems like Costner, but it ain't yeah. Costner. It's Kevin Costco. So similar, <laughs> similar. That's it. Aldi Costa. Um... <laughs> <laughs> and there we go. That's it. That's it for your films and TV. There's some okay stuff there, I guess. Two milk. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, uh, we're going to take a quick break. We will be back. We've still got two games. Just a quick look at the budget re-releases. Because I thought we've got some crap birds, the charts, all stuff to do yet. So see you in a moment. And we're back for the final part of November 1989. We still have two games to get through. Let's cut the chaff straight straight in. Vigilante, Graham. It's Vigilante. Vigilante, £9.99. It's got 54%. It's another arcade port. Another one. We have inundated them. So this is from US Gold. This is their version of IREM's Vigilante. This was originally mm. released in 1988. And according to Wikipedia, Graham, as we like to note, in Japan, Game Machine listed Vigilante on their April 15th, 1988 issue as being the second most 
successful table oh, I came to every month. Second, oh, that's you know. a spicy meatball. It is. That's pretty good. And now, a year and a half later, we have the home computer ports. This had already come out on the Amiga earlier in 1989, but now we had the 8-bit versions on Amstrad, Spectrum, and of course the C64. You remember them. <laughs> Unfortunately. The game, de- <laughs> the game is developed by Emerald Software. You remember them. Uh... <laughs> and that's all you get. Even the Wikipedia... I had a look, actually, the Wikipedia page for Emerald Software. I don't have any information on the C64 developer. There's loads of information on the Spectrum developer the amiga developers Amsterdam. Mm. no no one mentions the c64 people and why but it does have this interesting nugget which might explain something so emerald software was a video game publisher founded in 1988 by two uk entertainment executives david martin of martech and mike dixon who previously worked with emi and worked as the company ceo they set up in ireland hence the emerald the company was mostly populated by graduates or placement students from the then named waterford regional technical college with some university college dublin and others with no formal computer training okay that sounds like a good rationale to set up a business with them <laughs> yeah so it's like just wow. got people in that so anyway there you go that's emerald software they did the running man as they said makes sense <sighs> when you think about it it's just a load of kids isn't it they're just exploiting a load of kids yeah yeah totally yeah yeah there's a story there's a story to this and i'm going to read the back of the box from the data east american release of this to fill you in okay. and i reckon you're going to rip laugh at this first line as the master once said, no punch can hurt if you don't feel pain. <laughs> what? I don't know. Oh, it's the best of grasshopper, isn't it? That? Straight out there. What is it? No punch can hurt if you don't feel pain. Just, just suppose it's true. <laughs> uh... Okay, remember that. Because vigilante, just just remember, because there's okay. nothing to do with the rest of it. Because vigilante pits you against some of the toughest thugs that the sewers can produce. Okay, why are they down there? This. But never mind. I don't know because they're skinheads. They're skinheads, and you've had trouble with them before. But now they've kidnapped your woman. <laughs> right, that's a bit mean. Don't like that. You've warned them more than once <laughs> not to mess with you. <laughs> a good telling off, but they don't seem to get it. So now you have to show them. Skinheads are big into brute force. <laughs> Why are they picking on them? It seems like the worst people to pick making on. making this up. They don't have much choice. The brain activity going on below the scalp is about the same as the hair activity going on above it. <laughs> Goodness me. Okay. They'll, they'll come at you from every side wielding clubs, knives, chains and guns. You have only your fists and nunchucks for protection. Are they called nunchucks? Well, no, they're, they're not. I, I think they that's a good question. Maybe, maybe they are nunchucks. I don't know. I don't know. Most guys wouldn't have a prayer, but you're different. You're quick. You can run away. You can dodge a kick or sidestep a motorcycle at the same time you take out its rider. And you've got the stamina to fight them wherever they go, through city streets, in the junkyard they call home, across a bridge, even from the naked beams at the top of a skyscraper. Sure, Mm. you're putting your life on the line, but hey, this is worth it. It's for your girl. God's sake. That's the back of the box. <laughs> yeah, of course it is. Yeah, and by the way, it's nunchuck. It is nunchuck, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, when the game loads, we get a blurry mess of a loading screen with the logo at the top placed above the landscape of New York, and then the credits at the bottom, where the text is grey with a grey drop shadow. I sense dark things. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I've just written that shouldn't be. <laughs> no, stupid knew, is as stupid does. I knew as does. soon as I saw that, I went, "That's going to anger Graham." <laughs> That's going to make things him... angered me about this. Let me tell you, that's just one of them. <laughs> the title screen has a has a high score list and the UI for the game at the top, which shows the score, high score, your energy, the enemy's energy, the time left for the level, and the number of lives left, represented by three blocky, humanistic, human-ish 
figures. There's no music at this point, and you should be thankful for that fact. Pressing fire uh-huh. starts the game, and you get the following text. The police cannot stop the street gangs. As a vigilante, you must defend your people's turf. There's no comma or apostrophe on people's. That annoyed me. (laughs) (laughs) And there seems to be a space before the full stop. Press fire again, and we get a text scroll now. So we get text period Mm -hmm. with the rest of the opening message. The skinheads have taken Madonna hostage. To be fair, this is straight from the arcade. So this is is in the arcade. Have taken Madonna hostage. Take the power into your own hands with no full stop at the end. That's annoying. (laughs) Madonna. Bad grammar noise. But yeah, and it's weird that the game names its victim Madonna. It's really mm-hmm. odd. Did you ever Got see it, the... Uh, I don't know if you looked, and I'll, we'll actually post a picture of this somewhere, maybe on Twitter, or we'll certainly put it into our uh, Patreon bit, our Discord. Um, the arcade image for this is just... A, it's like um, an Argento picture. It's like a close-up of a woman's yeah. face with like a knife at her. Yeah, I remember thinking it's a bit odd. It's like, it's like a, it reminded me of an Argento. Yeah, yeah, those the, those horror, you know, them 70s horror movie pictures yeah. and posters, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, then the game starts. A hero walks on in all in an all-in-one blue jumpsuit. That's um, um, he comes so on dumb. from the left to the middle of the screen on the first level, Main Street. When he reaches the middle of the screen, the music starts. A thirty-five mm. second loop of ear-shredding horror that never ends. <laughs> it's horrible. So horrible. It's horrible. It's very annoying, to say the least, and will slowly drive you to proper eye twitching. Ugh. The graphics here are solely in the mighty medium res. And the main sprite is a decent size, I guess. And the blocky background's doing okay, if pretty ugly attempt at some 3D-style depth. It's very ugly. But, you know, I can see what they were going for, but it's ugly. The game itself is a Kung Fu Master clone, really. As you walk along a flat plane and enemies appear from either side and walk towards you, and you must kick or punch them. Pretty much it. Controls are simple enough, with left and right for movement, and up diagonals to jump forwards and punch. I say you you, you kind of just do this weird side splits thing and sort of flick your hand out at the end. It's very odd animation. The moves, the moves, <laughs> the there stupid, are ty- stupid moves. <laughs> there are different types of enemies, and they range in style from ones that need one hit to take out to some that takes five or six hits to take down. Supposedly some have knives and guns and other stabby, uh, stabby weapons and stuff. The blocky medium res nature of the whole thing and the lack of any decent animation makes it all just blur into a medium res mess, really. It's just a, yeah. a melange of blur. Should you make it to the end of level, you need to take out a burly, denim-clad Hagrid lookalike on the first level. Yep. what it looked like to me. Beat him, it's on to the second level, where you're told that Madonna is being transported to their junkyard and you need to get on it. This is a separate load as well for exactly the same gameplay, just in a junkyard. It's just different background graphics. The same enemies, just a different backdrop. It's nothing different here. The boss here is a Shaking Stevens-style get-up with leather jacket and red jumpsuit. Reminding me of Shaking Stevens. The third level takes us onto the bridge where we get a few motorbikes coming at us for a small bit of variety, but then back to the normal enemies. The boss here is a weird dancing, semi-naked grey man. I don't know. I didn't like it and I don't know what was going on by this point. Beat him and level four sees us downtown in the slums with another... So just take the fact there's the same enemies every level they never change it's just the same enemies uh the boss is another gray-skinned man in brown trousers though this time to beat at the end finally the last level is made in scotland and seizes on gudders with another leather jacketed boss to take out do that and you get a message saying well done and that's it what can, what, what do you say about this i mean what Nothing do good. you say no I, su- I suppose it functions and all works as it's supposed to which is something i mean you can play through it there's no real glitches. It's although actually there are glitches. I'll come to the glitches in a bit. Visually, it's pretty ugly. Chunky, blocky sprites, ugly backdrops, poor presentation on the front end and UI. And I don't know if there's sprite multiplexes. I don't know, but quite often the top half of my body would just disappear. Oh, it's or sometimes the bottom half. 
So it's just not great. It's, it's flickery and a bit uh, at times. The sound is, as already said, annoying as hell. The game is stupidly unbalanced. It's a cakewalk to get to the end boss on each level. But these, but the end bosses will just whittle down your health in seconds because just touching them makes you take damage, if, even if they're not doing an attack. So it's literally a minute of boring walking. Actually, don't walk. Jump. Because this is one of those games where you jump faster than you walk. So just jump along and you'll soon be at the end and then you'll have a boss to fight and you won't want to. It's boring. It's not fun. It's not interesting anyway. Again... This is it's clearly a game made with no care or love. I don't know what's going on at Emerald Software, but it's just a, a mess. It's another excuse to make sure the C64 had a version of an arcade game that no one really cared about. And of course, it had to be released at £9.99 for maximum profits for yeah. US Gold and to claim back the license. Um, it's a rip-off. It's a bad version of an arcade game that I can't remember anyone giving a shit about at the time. It's not even as good as the version of Kung Fu Master that we had on the C64 that came out years ago. That was all right. This is dreadful. So you go yeah. play that instead. The arcade game as well is really weird. It's like mm-hmm. everything seems squat. It's like the squattest, burliest game I've ever seen. Yeah, it it's like, like a that. load of squat burlies, and it's just odd. And it, <laughs> it's odd. It's this version, though. It's ugly, boring, vapid piece of software. It should never have seen the light of day. It's clearly unfinished. It's a joke of a piece. It's just ugly, horrible. Let alone just pointless. I didn't like this. What did it get? Fifty-four percent. No. For what? Just, just For what? no. No, no. It's not worth fifty-four percent. There's only five levels. They're dead easy to get through, apart from the bosses, which will you'll probably figure out how to do them quite quickly. But there's a, there's a, there's no there's nothing here. It's just rubbish. This is a low twenties for me, maybe even teens. I don't know. Yeah, rubbish. What did you think? Vigilante crap. It was rubbish. I mean, who wanted this? No one. Um, a crap kung fu master variant. It's, it's, it's not good. I mean, okay. Initially, when you first see the, the sprites in the game when it first starts, you th- you th- your initial thought might be okay. You know, there's there's a look. It's not terrible. It's most of the screen, and there's you know, you think all right, maybe there's something here. Then when it all starts moving, you're like, no. And that music, that f- <laughs> awful music. That that's that is a screwdriver to your brain. That thing, horrible, yeah. horrible, horrible, horrible thing. Anyway, and then, of course, the game plays, and it's slow. It's so badly slow. It's when very you kick, slow. When you, you try and kick his, his leg, he's, he doesn't kick his leg, goes, hey. <laughs> it's like slow. It's like, and you and sometimes I've noticed that your fighting moves are so slow that they don't. he doesn't actually thoroughly properly kick his leg out, so you don't complete the kick, which means that they just run in and get you. And so you, you can't fight properly. These games are hinged upon snappy fight controls. That's what even Kung Fu Master, the C64 version, got that bit right wasn't necessarily great looking but it got that right the snappiness yeah. this lacks that so you've got laggy lumpen fighting now i would even prefer so talking about lagginess i would still prefer to play karateka and the fighting in that to this garbage because at least that was methodical with its you know it was slow yes but at the same time methodical moves you can't pull, do the moves in this it's meant to be like an arcade fighter and it's just not with the music torturing you you're starting to twitch at this point the enemies come on in you know two by two hurrah don't they um, yep. and so and sometimes they just come on and walk off so you don't really have to do anything I kicked one and my body split in half and then my <laughs> leg turned into the top half of another enemy which was weird <laughs> that happened you know far too frequently for my liking so that means there's bugs in here as well the multiplex is not working well no it's just the whole thing was rubbish slow fights in this kind of game which means it's basically impossible really anyway because you just you know it's not they've offset that by making it basically empty and you know the boss is just the thing that you're going to have any challenge with just off with this shit is my answer to this <laughs> no more of this rubbish arcade crap it's another poor arcade conversion the arcade it deserves better than this it's not great by you know for sure but it's better than this sort of crappy conversions rubbish lots of rubbish us gold proving once again 
that they're just going to churn something out. Some sucker will buy it for 10 quid, link to an arcade, they might have heard of that. Just get lost. Get lost with this garbage. Just don't do it. I would rather have not had these games released on the 64 so that their lingering stain of a memory didn't taint the otherwise <laughs> good games that are out there. I mean, the only good thing about these crappy games is they're making the good ones look really good. So yeah. that's the only saving grace for these pieces of shit games that are coming out now because there's, there's such a rate of knots, I can't keep up with them. One piece of crap after another. Just take these games and wipe your ass and it's rubbish. I hated it. Rubbish. No, this, is, this is in the same issue as we had that Kendo Warrior for three quid. If you yeah, want a fighting game, go get that. You know, go, so and that's how to do it. Why did, well, just do that. You know, how hard is it to do that? Do that. <laughs> God's sake. <laughs> Fist 2 was better at this. Fist 2 is still better. And that's saying something. I mean, Fist 2 was had many faults, but it still remains better than this. Yusagi Yajimbo, way better than this. So that's oh, a side-scrolling yeah. fighter. How are they getting it wrong? How are they not looking at those games and going, there's the model we should use? Where are they, What are they doing? Well, because they're, they're slavishly copying the arcade machine. But if you're going to slavishly copy the arcade machine, then at least make it snappy and fast and, and a bit of a, you know, a laugh. Or as an idea... Don't release it on the C64. Just don't. Just if don't you're not do capable it. of doing it, don't. Yeah, just don't do it. Don't. You're not capable, don't do it. Don't try. Don't try. Yoda is wrong in this instant. You know, <laughs> he said, do or do, you know, do or do not. There is no try. I say, just don't. Don't bother. Yeah, don't bother. Jedi life is not for you, okay? <laughs> We're always going to need moisture farmers. Off you go. <laughs> Off Get you go, lost. Bro. Uh, yep. There we go. That's vigilante. Bloody rubbish. Oh, we've still got one left. Graham, that's over to you to regale us and tell us how to power drift. Power drift, big old arcade this. Another big. arcade conversion. Surprise, surprise, another arcade conversion. They just seem to be coming thick and fast, don't they? Mm-hmm. So this, the C64 version was published by Activision. And mm. It came in at £9.99. It was a Sizzler at 94%. Robbed but it's a Sizzler at 94%. Um, this was coded by Chris Butler, who did Commando and Ghosts and Goblins and many, many others. You know, we've come across Biss Crustler, I nearly called him then. Go across <laughs> Biss, Biss, Cru- good up, good up, Biss Crustler. <laughs> why, why I called him that, I don't know. All right, know. all right, Biss. Anyway, we've come across Chris Butler many times and Biss Crutler, to, to be fair. And also the musician here is Dave Lowe. He did Betrayal, Count Duckula and Postman Pat 3. I'm not sure what that means, really, but he did that. Weirdly, according to, the, according to the box for this, the game box instructions, this was programmed by Chris Butler. Graphics are by Chris Butler, but the music there was credited to Uncle Art. Make of that what you will. Mm. So Paradrift is a, in its arcade version, is a fast-moving lap-based racing game in which players choose to race on one of five different circuits, each made up of five stages. The game's tracks have a roller coaster feel to them, with steep climbs, sudden drops, and tight chicanes. It's also possible to fall from many of the higher race sections of the track, sending the car crashing to the ground below and losing valuable seconds. Each race takes place over four laps, and players must finish in third place or better to progress to the next stage. Finishing lower than that, third place, results in game over. But players can insert more credits, of course. You can always put in more, more of those lovely, delicious coins. Mm-hmm. A couple of little technical details about the arcade. Of course, this was a Sega game, so it was on the Sega Wideboard hardware. Three 68,000 processors running at a whopping 12.5 megahertz. Three? Three, eight. Xylog from the planet Xylog again, Z80 running at four <laughs> megahertz for the sound. And the sound chip here is a Yamaha YM2151 at four megahertz and a Sega proprietary thing at four megahertz. And there were, I think, two variants of this a sit down version and a kind of half sit down stand up version. One of yeah, which yeah. had lots of the, the main one that I remember big hydraulics, the whole thing tilts. This famously because it could tilt left and right. It's fundamentally built on the afterburner and the Thunderblade hardware. 
So the hydraulic mm-hmm. hardware as well. So it's kind of that ilk of Sega games, that kind of stuff. Cool. Interesting to note those kind of things, wasn't it? Okay, so that's kind of the arcade, and that's principally what the arcade was like. Very big, very loud, very bold. Very Sega, very 80s. But that's what they became famous for, those kind of things. And this is a particularly good one of those, if you like this kind of thing. Now, I'm going to caveat this by saying, I didn't like the arcade because I was crap at these kind of games. I just, I just was. I don't know why. wasn't very good at Outrun particularly. Sort of, that was probably the one I was best at. That's not saying much. But Power Drift and all these other variations of that, any super, you know, motorcycle ones, anything like this, I just, for some reason, I, I kind of, you know, I was fighting the chair. I felt like the, guy, the kid in Last Starfight when he's in the chair. And you, you fight in the chair. I'm not fighting the chair. It's fighting me. I've always felt a bit like that in hydraulic. Right, okay. Anyway, anyway, so the arcade is out there, big, loud, bold, quite expensive to play. And then the C64 conversion comes along. The description is nice and short and sweet for this. It says, and I quote, it's fast, it's furious, it's power drift. Choose from 12 wacky drivers like Jason the Skinhead. What is the obsession with skinheads? <laughs> I don't get don't it. Know. We've beaten anyway, them last time and now we're playing as them. Choose from 12 wacky racers like Jason the Skinhead or Geronimo the Mohican. Hmm. And rev your way through 27 stomach-churning circuits. Watch the dust fly and the wheels spin as you screech over a roller coaster track and wave goodbye to your opponents. Roar over mounds of mud. Drive through the desert. Slip and slide on snow-covered tarmac and race your way through the night to face the final lap. That sounds exciting, doesn't it? Keep it short and sweet. Boom. There we go. Lovely. Love it. So the initial question then, when you first approached this, and it was out on every format you can think of, Amiga, ST, for all of them, it came out of everything. Um, the, the, the initial question is, what happens when you try to cram a massive Sega hydraulic triple sixty-eight thousand CPU powered arcade roller coaster style monster racing game that would normally run at twelve megahertz on a rough day? What happens when you try and cram that into a Commodore sixty-four with sixty-four K? and a one megahertz CPU, which is actually slightly under that for PAL. And, and this is the kind of incredible part, you do that in a single load. Well, let's find out when we play a game called Crammage. <laughs> so there's a really good interview with Chris Butler. Well, really good. It's a Zap interview, so it's all right. But it's, there's an interview with Chris Butler from the pages of Zap. Issue 54, which we, we scoffed at only because it was you know, it was a throwy thing in the corner of the front cover, oh, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah. But, but there's actually some nice technical insight into how he did what he did to achieve, which is te- almost the impossible with this. Um, and so go and read that. I'm not going to go into all the details of what he did, you know, what he said and how he did it and everything else. But what I will say, his, his approach to these kind of games is just methodical. He decides, you know, he's got the C64, he's got the hardware in front of him, he knows kind of what the limitations are. He looks at the arcade and he makes quick decisions about what is going to be in the arc, what is going to be in this conversion and what isn't, what is you know going to be technically feasible and whatnot. But his philosophy going into this was, if I can get into this game, I'm going to get it in. If I can't, I can't. That's just the way it is. So, and the first thing that goes, obviously, is the rotational, because there's no easy way of rotating a C64 screen. So in the arcade, when you turned left and went up the slopes on the track, the whole hydraulics and the whole screen shifted it, so it tilted, yeah, yeah. tilted that way. So he was there was no way he was going to really effective, be able to effectively do that on a C64, because it simply requires too much of the CPU to be able to tilt screens and turn screens. It's just not going to happen. Even now in modern demos, this is something of a very, you know, a a trick that requires a lot of CPU power in mathematics. And it's just not going to happen. So that went, okay, fine. So you've got to make sure then you're going to make good on the other stuff. And I think Mm -hmm. he delivers here. So um, it does have some nice insights to how he was going to cram this game in. And it's the single load part that completely blew my mind because he made that decision early on. He's like, the best thing I can do here is make this game as fast as possible, try and get as much of the arcade logic in as I can. And it it needs to be a single load because nobody wants to load, you know, play a game that's exciting and fast and then wait, exciting and fast and wait. 
So he's, his thought process is, is actually all in the right place. He's making all the right noises. This is somebody that has taken the time to play the arcade and start to think about how you're going to make a version of this, not just wrote, create recreation of a poor version. He's thinking, actually, what can we do? I like that. Mm-hmm. So I think it's fair to say, I think it's a bit of an understatement of how well and what he did to achieve some of the clever coding. The code chops on display in this game are insane. They are insane for a game of this type. And we'll cover some of them as we go through. But that's his philosophy. If it's doable, it's going in. If it's not, I'm not going to do it. Simple logic. The game's got some nice presentation, decent music, considering the limitations. 6K in total for all that music in that game. 6K, all of it. And that's decent music, considering the limitations and the memory had available. A nice bold Activision and Sega logo emblazoned the loading screen, so you get them out of the way. And then also you get some loading characters as well. You get a view of Michael. Emily and Jason, for reasons mm. I'm not sure why you just see those three. I'm guessing they're the ones you can choose from, I think. But those are the three you see. And then the title screen, nice big logo. Press any key. Let's go. That's the game. That's the loading part. So you go to the opening screen. And you've got a row of people lined up at the top with an indicator that flicks between them, highlights them. You select your track by pressing left and right on the joystick out of the five on display because all the tracks are in here and all of the levels in those tracks. Pretty yeah. impressive for a single load. Quite incredible, really. 25, isn't it? Yep. So you select between the five tracks, well, the five races, should I say, and then you click the fire button when your preferred player is highlighted across the top. So it hops between all five. So all of the players from the arcade are also in this version. That's pretty incredible. That's pretty incredible. And by the way, when you choose those, all the other people in the race are the people in that top of that list. Again, it's it's bloody incredible, really. You think about it. So all the races are in it as well. Wow. Okay. So once you've done that, you select your track, then your player actually gets grabbed like the arcade. Obviously, it's not quite as spinny as the arcade and there's some... Some of the big bells and whistles are not going to be here. It hasn't got three sixty-eight thousand processors, right? Mm-hmm. But you do get, you see a little person get grabbed, a giant sort of robotic arm grabs them. Your car comes up and he gets slotted into your car and then he's dropped down ready to begin the race. So you do have at least have a sequence for that. Doesn't just go, bing, right, start race, go. It's got a little bit of that. You get the little start graphic. You've got a UI across the top and you've got a little traffic light to begin. It's got the elements that are required to just keep you in there. Okay. So once you're inside the vehicle, um, like I said, there's five stages to each level, giving you a total of like 25 races, I guess, to do. And each one of those has four laps. So it's quite a lot to go at, mm-hmm. which is quite nice. And the graphics here are okay. All right. The gray background is a little bit off-putting at that point on the main screen, but the characters at the top look okay. Nice little pixel versions of the arcade characters. The track icons seem a little bit nondescript, but they kind of, you know, they, they work for the context of what they are. That's straight out of the arcade you got the copyrights and everything else. And then once you've decided on who you're going to be, the game begins. I don't know that the choosing of the different players has much of a bearing on how they control. Um, I don't know that for sure. Probably not much in this. I don't think so, no. But I I think it's just, you know, at least it has it in and you've got that selection. So, you know, it might feel like you're playing a different character. I think the car color does change for each one, though, I think. Maybe. So what strikes you initially is how bold an attempt this is to grasp the arcade once the game begins. At the top is the row of characters who are now your competitors. That's that's like the arcade screen. It's, you know, similar how the arcade looks. You don't have the map view that's on the arcade. That's gone, I'm afraid. That's, you know, that's just, you know, it's a step too far for the C64. But do you really need it? Maybe you do. I don't know. I didn't find that I did. Next to that is your current race position. Below that, your time, your score, your checkpoint count, the stage that you're on, the lap, the gear, whether it's high or low. Again, we're in that high-low territory, but in this kind of vehicle, it works. And you speed in KPH. And that takes up the top sixth of the screen. There's a lot of information crammed into a small space that kind of works here. And it's the first time I've really seen that. Yeah, the row of people at the top as well are in the position they're in in the race, isn't it? Because it ties with the position. Yeah. So as you're overtaken, you move around and they move around. And And they do little gestures and stuff as well. And you do little gestures. So the clever part here is that that's all 
from the arcade. It's all here, and it actually is all graphically okay. It's good. It's not bad mm. at all. Yeah. No. Yes. Obviously, it's the little bit, things are a little bit simpler, but that UI does work in the context of the game. There's a lot of stuff going on there. It all works. Below that is the game area, which with a large roadside detail, I think. So, so a wide track and um, with with crinkly edges, lovely crinkly edges. Um, your power drift vehicle, which while it's a simpler version of the arcade, fine. It lacks animation on the wheels and there's some details missing, but does at least look different to a race car. It looks like the power drift car. So it's got big wheels, you know, small sort of cockpit and stuff. It looks like like it should, albeit mm. a limited version in terms of color, but it still looks like it should. The race starts and you control your vehicle with up speed up, fire for gear change, left and right to steer and down to brake. Dead easy controls. The track effect and the detail here is fast and it can't be underestimated how fast that is and how many frames are coming at you. That works really well in here. This is way better than we've seen before in games of this type, like like Space Harrier or Thunderblade, where it had a similar kind of 3D effect. This is way faster than that. And mm. the technicalities of how that was achieved are explained in that Zap article. And I can tell you, what he's doing is clever. Is really, really clever. The sprite, there's sprite scaling in there. There's character mapping. There's a whole bunch of stuff. Full screen scrolling. There's a lot of really clever coding tricks to get in there that are all working together to create this illusion in this. And so... As if that wasn't enough, and and I think and I think one of the key ingredients at this point, because obviously that's all quite good, is that this is all greatly assisted by a really good piece of music that plays while you're racing the game that pushes the kind of game along. Now the track, obviously, the track has all sorts of bends and there's rolling hills and it does everything but the tilting action. But that music that's in there really pushes the game. It pushes you into it. A bit like the way that the some of the music did in Outrun, not the C64 version, but that the, the idea of that having a piece of music that just complements the action of the game without becoming annoying. It's only a fairly short piece, but it just keeps you into the game and it keeps you kind of into the racing part. Mm -hmm. So you don't, and it still has sound effects as well. So when you go past some of the other cars in the race, you get this kind of meow sound. All right, it's a bit basic, but it keeps, there's a pace to this game. And it reminds me, it's often when this, when these two things are married together. So when you get the music fits the game and the pace is right, you get the same effect that you got with Monty on the Run, where the music yeah, is, you yeah, know, it's a great piece of music, yeah. but it, it's because it aligns with the game paradigm, it feels like it's pushing you into the game more. So you feel it like you're into it drives you more. along, yeah. Yeah, and so that yeah. does with this. So it, it complements it really well, which adds an extra dimension to this. So those are all really good things, aren't they? It's not bad at all. So like I said, the track bends and goes all over the place, minus the tilt, but the track is pretty, it goes up and down. You've got hills and you can even have little jumps and everything. All of that detail is there. Um, the character does gestures as you zoom past the other competitors, which is straight out of the arcade. A nice touch reminds me of a game that this is must be an influence on, which is the Mario Kart games. Is I think you pointed out last time we spoke about it. It is no doubt this is this I is a precursor so. to that. There's a direct line between this and the Mario Kart games. It, it cannot, it can't be, you know, because when you go past, you can wave your hand, shake your fist at them, and all that kind of stuff. And then when you win the races. Um, you get a celebratory animation. They drop, they break down into who the third, second, and third place, and you see the graphics. And the winner shakes, you know, has a little celebration. The others are kind of looking a bit glum. Now, later down the line, you see this all the time in the Mario Kart game. Mario Kart Eight specifically has that kind of sequence, albeit in Fancy Pants 3D. So you complete the stage and you head into the next one, which is actually different in both difficulty, detail, and presentation, and fundamental ways. These levels aren't just the same level over and over again. Obviously, when you're doing a lap of the same level, it is. Don't not get me wrong. But when you go from stage to stage, they change. The colors change. The sky changes. The backgrounds change. The details around the track. You've got tunnels. You have trees. Sometimes you have other things as well. And it's all moving towards you at such a rate in the track as well. It's, this is in kind of an incredible code base for this. It really is a, a really, really, really super optimized piece of code. Like, it's incredible, really. So that's all brilliant in its own right. The graphics in this game are really, I think, considering the amount of pixels that are flying about, I think they're really good. There's a lot more detail here than I thought there would be. There's certainly a lot more here than there is in Space Area or Thunderblade. 
The controls are fast. The game feels responsive and the courses feel challenging, but not insurmountable. You feel like you've got a chance in these races, which is a key ingredient to this kind of game. And something that Mario Kart 8 and Mario Kart Deluxe get exactly right and always have. They get that exact. The idea that the races are challenging, but not insurmountable is what keeps you playing these games. Because if, if otherwise, we've seen games like this, if it's too hard, you bounce straight off it. If it's too slow and too sluggish, you bounce straight off it. You have to get the balance right between the speed and the challenge. And they've got it right here. Track is cleverly rendered. While your vehicle lacks the frames on the tires, um, they might have given it some extra visual cues. The motion of the joystick suits this and you find the speed is a good compromise. So moving around the track is, is actually sort of feels like you've got control of the vehicle. The speed of the details that fly down the sides of that road is truly staggering on the C64. This is running at less than one megahertz, remember. That's incredible that it's got that visual you know, zoom feel. Massive, massive kudos to Chris Butler because that is some of the most incredible code I've ever seen on the C64 for a game. Might not look like it, you know, but like the Millennium Falcon. It's got it where it counts, right? <laughs> anyway, I remember not liking this back in the day, bizarrely enough, the C64 version, and I'm not 100% sure why. I was trying to th- sort of think back to why, and I think it was just at a time when I was getting a lot of games and I was paying many of them lip service. Whack it in the drive, load it up, yeah, it works, stick it on a copy of the disc, send it to you know somebody in Europe or several people in Europe or whatever. Mm. Um, and I remember thinking that it wasn't that great. But looking at this now, it was I was struck by a couple of things. Firstly, that scrolling is, is amazing in this game. It's so fast. When you crash, the whole, sc- the whole screen spins with you. That's an incredible effect when it does it. Yeah, yeah. I was actually, I mean, I was actually taken aback. I'm like, wow. I, I, compl- I didn't realize it that till I did it. I was like, that's actually incredible. The whole screen was moving at a fast rate. Now, I know there's tricks to animate and move the whole screen on the C64. Clearly, that's what's being exploited here. But my God, this, is this one of the first times that they've done that in one of these games where they're just utilizing some of the really clever demo tricks that are really good, but, but doing it in the right way, not making a game and then filling it with demo code and making it so it looks like a demo, making a game and leveraging demo techniques, which means that you're looking mm-hmm. at highly optimized code and using some of the clever op codes and some of the clever routines from the demo scene. I think that must be the case. Anyway, so I think, so I was struck by that, that initially is that, that, you know, the whole screen spinning, the road details whizzing, the speed of it all. And the code base, like I said, is the best, I think, on some of the best on the machine, if not perhaps the best, but it's certainly up there. The graphics are way better than I thought they are. From the little pixel heads to the background details to the cars and beyond, there is some care taken to capture what can be done with a C64 in the most optimized way possible. All of the arcade races and tracks are here in a single load. I suspect they're a tad shorter, maybe, the lo- the actual races themselves, maybe, than the arcade. Maybe. I'm no, I, I didn't play the arcade to find out, but I would imagine they probably are a little bit because you're going to compromise somewhere, maybe the little short laps. But, and I also, like I also said, that infamous arcade tilting is not present. Okay, so what? A limitation is a limitation. The sound in the game is really good too. Granted, there's the odd, you know, the odd zoom sound is maybe a bit passe, but the music has a really great driving pace, pushes everything along, and it matches that game so well. Like I said, you know, this is this is just as good as the outrun kind of vibes, really. Just keeps you racing. I found myself genuinely, genuinely surprised by this game because I was going into thinking it was crap, remember? Um, mm. This is a great conversion of the arcade to the C64. A really great conversion. It easily captures the fun of, and the excitement of the arcade, which I, I genuinely didn't expect. Even without the hydraulics and having 368,000 CPUs, Chris Butler demonstrates the kind of coding skills here that you rarely see outside of people like Archer McLean or Andrew Braybrook. Truly incredible and a, and a great part of the arcade. Interesting that this was uh, uh, made by ex-US Gold people that went to Activision. So um, the, one of the producers were, who was at US Gold left and, and then he took Chris Butler with him. They went to Activision and then they made this. So it kind of shows you that 
this would if this was a US gold game, this would never have been this good. Um, so it kind of proves that. Um, because I suspect Activision do actually have quality processes and thresholds. And Chris was given the time to get it done. In fact, he says in the interview, he was given from February to September of that year to have this game ready. And there was a £250 week delay clause to him personally, or to his to his pocket, if that deadline was missed. So for every week he missed, he got fined 250 quid. Seven to eight months of work is clearly on display here. Mm. And when you've got it in the hands of a really competent programmer like that, it's all the time he needed. What a cracking game this is. Genuinely surprised me. It should have been a gold medal. What about you? Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's just a really... Uh, I can remember liking it at the time. I remember being quite impressed. I mean, it's one of the, Like I said, I was getting games that were single loads back then, but there weren't very many of them just to sort of still play mm. stuff every now and again. I think this must have been like at the, the low ebb of my involvement in the CC12, but I do remember playing this back then. And I remember quite enjoying it. Um, and yeah, Chris Butler just continues on his character squ- scaling quest on the C64. Um, and like, like you said, I argued this could be an early precursor to the Mario Kart games in Power Drift. It's character because it's character racing, isn't it? Because it's that's the thing. Yes, it is character racing, and yeah. but and that first, second, third principle as well. Yeah, more interesting. So you don't just have to win, but you can come first, second, or third. Again, it's very Mario, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. That, that's what I was thinking about this. And yeah, having all the characters at the top all being different, having them all on track at the same time, and, and doing gestures and stuff. It just felt like I don't know if we had a game that was doing character-based racing as much as we didn't know who these characters were. But I think this is probably one of the first, whether it's in the arcade, but it, but cramming it all in here, it would have been very easy to elide all that from the C64 port and just have yeah. a. A, a, yes. you know blah blah but it's not it's all there and they're all there at the top and you the way they swap places is you take over them it's, and the fact that they exist on the track first and second like out in front and when you're closing in on them they're hard to catch up with you you've got to drive really well yeah. when you're closing down on them it's another one of those ridiculous ports as the arcade was a proper powerhouse from Sega yet the C64 version here is a truly a work of a coding genius as far as I'm concerned I don't know why it's fitting all yeah. this into one single load like what was that one we looked at um, Firepower why was that on multi-load why is Vigilante yeah. a multi-load? I don't understand yeah. it. Compare and contrast this, like I said, with the multi-load nightmare of Vigilante. See what the C64 can do when in the hands of those who know it. And I'm not blaming those fresh out of college or uni. I'm not willing no. to blame at those. No. It's just those exploiting them and the end users who and exploiting them and exploiting the end users who buy their crap. It's those people from setting up these businesses and what have you. How to get the best out of yeah. This fast and easy to control. And I guess you could question the longevity of it. I mean, it's quite so fast you can whip through it. Yeah. But, but you know, it is what it is. The lack of there is. I thought there could have been a bit of a sound effect for the, for the car, maybe. But the music works kind of well, and there is a little bit of sound effects here and then. So that does lend it a little bit of sense of place. You just the music. I don't know. But you can't knock what has been achieved here. No, you can. It's incredible, really. The visuals are fast. The control, the yeah. controls are responsive, which is always yes. handy. Yeah, which is a surprise when all that movement's going and you think there's going to be a compromise somewhere, but not in the controls. No, and you can see the different characters and where they are in the race. The options to choose the tracks and races are all very well done. Yeah, the opening sequence, the opening bit where you choose them is really nice. Like you point at the track, you wait to your character, you press fire, it puts them in the yeah. car and drives off. It's all cool. It's a great 8-bit version of the arcade. And whilst it's, you know, it's rough in comparison, of course it's got to be, but it is what it is. It really should not be um, this good in the first place. It shouldn't be this yeah, good because it's crazy. what you know. It was clearly what he's learned from both doing Thunderblade and doing say uh, Space Harrier has fed into this, and he's yes. got better and better and better at doing that. And you learn, you learn, you, you get tricks. And I should have done that there, and you had more time and having the time to make this. So he's, this is building. He's had seven months, but this is built on two previous games doing that same kind of techniques and stuff. So we're getting the fruits of his labors here. It's a technical triumph, really. I mean, if Boogie Boy was a gold medal, then this is. 
I think. Yeah. I think. I think it's unfair that that got one and this didn't. Um, yeah. But you know, different reviewing people. But the two gold medals we did have this this uh, week, this month, travesty that this uh, didn't get as high a percentage. Unbelievable! Really. Unbelievable! Yeah, it really is ridiculous. But there we go. That's power drift. It is very good. It's a very, very, very good arcade conversion. Incredible, incredible code on that. It just it blew my mind. It's so good. I mean, you are, you can obviously appreciate it from that tech more than I can, but even I think it's like you know, looking at it, you play, and it's like it's all there. It's all so smooth, and five sets of tracks in each thing. I mean, God knows what's being compressed and compressed and uncompressed and all over the place. There must be some highly efficient compression routines pulling all that data out and stuff. Believe and it or it not, right there's, there's a multiplexer in there. Oh really? Can you believe it? Yes, there's a multiplexer in there running, and and, and a massive raster split raster splits in there as well. Such clever use of the way you split that screen up with raster rasters, you wouldn't believe it. It's just mind blowing. I might have to read the interview. Sounds like quite an interesting interview. But there we go. That's Power Drift. Clearly the best game this week. <laughs> yeah, by miles. Yeah. If you, I mean, yeah. there's always Continental Circus, which you know was equally as good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, it wasn't. No. So there you go. What did we look at this week? We looked at the horror that was the Untouchables, the pain that was Continental Circus, the nightmare that was Firepower, the terror that was Vigilante, and the sumptuous Power Drift at the end. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Those are those objectives, by the way, the horror, the terror. They sound like some sort of bosses from a Metal Gear Solid game, but there you go. <laughs> they do, yeah. But never mind. There were some budget releases as well that were reviewed in this uh, month's app. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, as you've noted already, when you did Continental Circus, Pit Stop 2 was reviewed for two ninety nine. Yep. <laughs> Yeah. there you go just go buy it we've said it all along just go get it yeah. if you haven't got it already it. and everybody always had it on a copy anyway but yeah. just go buy it for three quid yeah. god's sake yeah way uh, better than anything else yeah yeah whizball for three quid bargain that's a bargain, isn't it? bargain yeah crystal castles for three quid yeah. it's all right crystal castles it's not oh, it's right. not terrible but it's a bit withy no. waffy soldier of light for three quid uh, no no no, no do. it's not it's not worth it no and world series baseball Mm-hmm. That was the one with the massive, the massive screen for three. Yeah, quid. Yeah, for three quid, it's better than it would be for full price. So, if you like yeah. baseball, you know, it's a bit, it's, it's an easier in than any of the Ringler games, anyway. <laughs> Anything's an easier in than the Ringler games. Exactly. <laughs> the only choice you have to make with this one is whether you buy it at budget price or not. <laughs> yeah, James Joyce's Ulysses is an easier in than a Ringler game. <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> There we go. That's that's all the games. We've got some crapverts. We've got a couple of crapverts. Yes, okay. Bushido, the way of the warrior. <laughs> With dancing Bushido men. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I can see what they've tried to do. I can see what they've tried to do. It doesn't... I mean, this, you know, obviously what we're looking at, just so we can describe this, is there's a large typeface, you know, of, you know, there with the, you know, classic... Which is decent. No problem with the yeah, type on this. It's, it's all right. It's you know, it's a bit cliche, but it's it is what it is. It's you know, it's got kind of oriental writing. All right, fair enough. The Firebird logo is obtuse in the middle. Why put it there? Right, slapping the eye line. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And then to the left and the right of that is a mirror image of a, a samurai in sort of classic um, drawn samurai wielding a samurai sword. Uh, technically, that's not a samurai sword because it's straight bladed samurai sword, and samurai swords aren't straight bladed. That's technically yeah. that's a ninja sword he's got there. But either way, um, so but he's dressed in sort of traditional samurai garb. Now you might think, well, did they dress fan- in those fancy kind of colours? And yes, they did. They did actually do that. It was considered, you know, the more colourful the fabrics and dyes, 
which were quite difficult to achieve than the more mm. elaborate, you know, the, you know, your, your ranking was in the samurai hierarchy. It's not a terrible drawing of a samurai. It's just a bit out of place on a boring grey background. <laughs> and two of them. <laughs> and two of them just mirrored. Just, just a mirror. It's just a bit, it's a bit, you know, it would have been better to have one maybe chopping at somebody or a thing. Yes. Um, as opposed to that, which looks like there's just, you know, strike a pose. Uh, strike a pose. Yeah, or maybe <laughs> just one embiggened, taking up a bit more of the yeah, space. Yeah, it would have been better to have, I think, you know, you could have done, you, you didn't need the, the hammer pants on, did he? You know, he's got the, you know, could have no, cut out. But it's just, it's just those two things on a boring grey background with Firebird in the middle. I'm not quite, the, the artwork's fine, but it's just, it's just a dreadful, whoever thought of the layout for this needs a slap. Yeah, and he's clearly been watching, because you know, it's got a Ming vibe about the face, so it's been, watch, been watching yeah. for Scotland. But look at his feet, so dainty, those little feet. Little tiny, little <laughs> yeah, tiny yeah, feet. Right. You know, so he's got size two feet, so he's not going to be very stable. <laughs> I mean, it could be that these are twins doing an incredible dance routine. Yeah, I think maybe that's, a, I don't know what, I don't remember anything about the game, but yeah. No, I can't remember this game either. Yeah. But, but they are, in point. all fairness to them, the patterns on their clothes on the on the mirrored samurais they are actual japanese patterns so they do yeah. look like that so that's that's you know they've gone for i'll give them credit for the authentic samurai type vibe but you know you're losing points for tiny little feet and <laughs> for just blatantly mirroring the image which is a bit of a cop <laughs> yeah, out it really is uh it's not terrible it's a bit of crap because i like it's just there's things that could have been better but there's things that make me laugh about it well, it's just like, like it's the firebird logo where it is it just ruins the whole thing the ambience is ruined by a giant golden firebird logo <laughs> why is it yeah. there put it down below on the bottom yeah going to the right up at the bottom so your warrior does however have a magical belt which can transport him uh. back to base and safety if his life is severely endangered oh dear mate i yeah. don't know so is there, you've got you, you got your disposal, you've got different characters ranging from monks to samurai warriors. Why not have a range of the characters on the front then? Why just one mirrored? That's you would ask, you would wonder, you would think. Yeah. And he's also got no sheath for his sword, which no samurai would ever be without, unless it's just hiding behind him, but you can't tell if it's behind him. But it, I suspect it would be poking out the side, you'd see it. You'd see it somewhere. Yeah, there we go. That's that one. <laughs> so this this is the game Eye of Horus. <laughs> what? I can only assume it's what's his face. It's Metabolist Man has come back. He's back. The bird <laughs> man is form. back in horror's form. <laughs> that is, I mean, that is some ripped bird, isn't it? Those Goodness muscles me, on is. his right arm holding the ankle. He has been in the gym, that guy. He's been, you know, when we, we did the uh, Christmas special and I talked about my melted Stretch Armstrong? Yes. <laughs> that's what it yeah, looks like. It's a bit like that. So, I mean, there's a few, look at the tagline. Walk like an Egyptian, fly like a bird. <laughs> it's Metabolist too. It it's must meta- be. It is, isn't it? It is. And it says that at the bottom, you are Horus, the hawk-headed god. Is that a hawk head? <laughs> I don't know. it is. Um, but what baffles me is there's this the snake the snake in that makes me laugh I laughed as soon as I saw it yeah it's like, it's like going ah hey 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 get off get off hey get off because he's got in his left hand he's gripping a snake's head very tightly which is well, probably a, snake, a euphemism a snake with no head yeah or a, oh, he's chopped it off maybe yeah or this, maybe that's the snake's head on the, coming in going hey because he's chopped it I don't know but either way there's a giant snake coming in from the right side going hey and there's one in the bottom left looking like he doesn't care (laughs) because he's obviously he's got the head of a hawk a bird head but he's got a very muscular body because he's clearly been you know been roiding it (laughs) up at the gym overly muscular he's been hitting the you know the uh, (laughs) the, you know he's been on the tread what's it called the dynabol he's been on the old dynabol here (laughs) TRT treatment's working you know he's ripped beyond wildest dream he's holding a giant gold angst symbol 
Yeah. Like it's nothing. And that would weigh a lot. That'd be weighing, that'd be easy. You know, gold's heavy. That'd be a kilo of gold he's got in his hand there. It's well heavy, that. Um, <laughs> and it, I suppose, you know, it's, I'll tell you what, it is Egyptian looking. It's got hieroglyphics on it. It's got a Horus bodybuilder on it. Um, doing, <laughs> and it's got, an, he's, he's holding an Egyptian symbol-ish. Yeah. Um, so, and it, the graph, it says at the bottom as well, it's got stunning Egyptian graphics. Is that yeah. a thing? Stunning Egyptian <laughs> graphics. <laughs> is, that, is that like high res? So I like the uh, 44 location adventure area. 44 locations doesn't sound like a lot. No, over 30 collectibles with unique properties and self-mapping. Oh, I don't like the sound of it. And the screens don't give much away. It's, it's the Atari ST versions getting a good innings there on their screens. Very much so. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. And the, but the snake's fangless as well, you know. says they've removed the snake's fangs for some reason. It would look scarier and more ferocious if it was fanging it. but Because it's got no fangs, it's going, eh. <laughs> <laughs> Hey. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought when I was sort of just flicking through the magazines and I saw this. So that statement, hey, hey, you can also win a holiday in Egypt for two. Oh, that's actually you know that's good. That's a good prize to win. Was did you, yeah. what did you win that for for doing the game? Is it? Or is yeah, it I don't know. And also, runner-up prizes are five sets of the Egypt ancient Egyptian something or other. So what's that logo with the beetle on it? There, was it say that? Was that Masterworks for the Millennium thing again? Whatever that meant. I don't know. We don't know. And so it was actually made by Logotron. <laughs> That's not a word. <laughs> not them again. And then, then with another logo variation, a vector logo that you can't see. Is it a turtle? Is it a vector of a turtle? Uh, yeah, I think it is actually. Or is it a beetle? Is it the beetle from Adam? Is it know, a beetle? It Maybe a beetle. Could be a, could be a beetle. Could be. Anyway, there's some mysterious writing up the sides and the top. It's, it's just, you know what, they've clearly got a picture of, and this is actually a testament to the late 80s, early 90s bodybuilders at this point. There was a bit of a sea change from the pumping iron bodybuilders, who were all obviously mega ripped bodybuilding types. There was a bit of a change where it went from the Arnold Schwarzenegger and the um, a, the um, Lou Ferrino type bodybuilders, those kind, to the Ronnie Coleman style of the sort of, you know, they were, they were starting to go that way where they became super huge and super ripped. And the steroids, you know, were really refined and really pumping these guys out. So it's clearly they've got an image of one of those guys off the front of Flex magazine or something and just give it a bird head. Um, or maybe there was a bird-headed bodybuilder who never won a competition because they, when he ever went, he was, his body's amazing, but he's got that bird head going on. He can't give, can't give it to you. He's like, ah, ah. <laughs> Keeps nicking all the trill. <laughs> exactly. Just give him some trill, he'll be happy. Absolutely. Give him a mirror, he'll peck, he'll peck it himself for hours. Who's up next? Oh, it's Harry Hawk. Oh, God's sake. <laughs> Come on, he'll do his flexing and then peck at you. Humour him because he puts a lot of effort into his body. He can't do anything about his beak. He can't. He just can't, all right? He can't. He can't, he can't roid up a beak. And just because we know what happened last time, can everyone please make sure they've got no worms, seeds, or berries on display? Thank you, or any small rodents for that matter. You know, Harry, last time, you know, we saw what happened to Perky the hamster. It wasn't pleasant for everybody. We don't want a repeat of what happened in London. <laughs> anyway, so yes, it's a interesting idea. <laughs> Body, bodybuilding birdmen. That's the, they've gone to the next level. It's metabolis. He's metabolized. Metabolis. He's roid. He's roided up metabolis. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there we go. There we go. That's our crap verts for the week. We've got some charts, though. Let's read our charts, like we always do. These are from Commodore User, as ever. Down to number 10 uh, from number 2 is Green Beret. Um, down okay. to number 9 from number 6 is Enduro Racer. Staying at number 8 is Summer Games. Of course it is. Down to number 7 from 4 is Yi Kung Fu. Hey. Uh, up to number 6 from 9 is New Zealand Story. Good. Staying at number 5 is Robocop. 
bad. No. Uh, up to number four from 11 is Indiana Jones Last Crusade. That's the action game, or the inaction okay. game, as we looked at last week. Crap. Um, it's new in at number three, a new entry, Batman the Movie. Of course it is. Uh, up to number two from number three is Pit Stop 2. Good. And staying at number one is Crazy Cars. Whatever that is. Is yeah. that a compilation, is it? No, no, no. It's a, it's a series of games. There's three games in the Crazy Cars series, but oh, okay. we've never right. reviewed. Oh, weird. Okay. Yeah. We'll look at them another day one day, maybe. Maybe. So let's do the rest of the chart. Uh, number 11 is a new entry for Batman 88. I think that's the okay. Cape Crusader one. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, uh, up to number 12 for 20, Spitfire 40. We will look right. at that at some point. New entry at number 13, Rick Dangerous. Good. Uh, up to 14 from 17, Dragon Ninja. New entry mm. at 15, APB. Excellent. Uh, down to number 16 from 10 is 1942. Mm. Yes. New entry at 17 is Top Gun. Okay. That's one of its words. That's a budget re-release. Uh, Treble Champions is a new entry at number 18. Mm. Uh, uh, down to number 19 from 7 is Scooby-Doo. Good. Scooby-Don't. Um, and a new entry at 20 is Emily Hughes' International Soccer. Back again. It's back again in pog form. So I think we've got about 14 games for December. So let's see what we've got coming up over the next couple of weeks. We've got uh, Action Fighter. Okay. Altered Beast. Mm, another arcade conversion. It is. That's the classic um, Sega on it. Wise from your grave. Yes, that's the one. That's the one. Battle Chess. I don't know if we'll look at that one. Mm-hmm. Um, Cabal. Oh, not Cable. <laughs> yeah, Cable. Yeah. Um, Kickoff. We've got the C64 version oh, of Kickoff. finally. Uh, mm. Myth. Oh, biggie. Uh, Rampage, but I think that's a budget re-release probably. Yeah, it must be. Uh, Spitfire. Okay. Maybe that's Spitfire okay. 40, I don't know. Sporting Maybe. Triangles. Okay, is that the TV game show? That- yeah, I think oh, so. No. Game <laughs> show made flesh. Yeah. Uh, Star Command. Whatever that is. Budget one. Uh, Stunt Car Racer. Oh, blimey. Nah, that's a biggie. There's Terry's Big Adventure. Oh, no. Is, is here. The, we, we looked at the crap, uh, but that's here. Uh, and we've got Top Gun. Okay. But I think that's a budget okay. re-release. Have we ever looked at Top Gun? I don't remember it, but we'd have to, maybe. We'll have to check. We've done, we've done a lot. Uh, <laughs> Turbo Outrun. Wow, okay. Gold medal. That's got Get great music in there. Gold medal. And finally, Xenophobe. Mm, I believe yeah, it sounds shoot em uh, I'll have a look. Let me just have a quick sounds, look. Sounds shoot em that. What, Xenophobe? Yeah. Uh, I don't think I've ever heard of it. Don't ring any bells. Turbo Outrun has music by um, Jerome Jerome Tell. I think it does. I think it does. Let's have a look. So, any of you missed out on Turbo Outrun, Sporting Triangles, NFO, Cabal, Top Gun. No, we haven't looked at Top Gun before. Terry's Big Adventure, Stunt mm. Car Racer, Action Fighter, Altered Beast, Battle Chest, Kickoff, Spitfire, and Myth are our next two weeks worth of games. Exciting. It is. It is. And then that's it. That's it. 1989 is done. It is done. done. It's history. Wow. Once again, wow. it's history. And it's been a big year as well, so there's going to be a whole bunch of stuff to sort out for the yeah. awards. Goodness me. Right, where, goodness, wow. Well, we'll certainly be reaching out to our patrons for some info there. And Oh, God. Yeah, my thoughts are the top end is going to be fought by a small few. Yeah. The bottom yes. end is going to be packed with contestants. Yeah, I'm dreading things like the worst, ca- worst you know, arcade catastrophe. Is going to arcade be a really catastrophe, uh, licence crapness. Yeah, it's, they're going to be tough. And interestingly, the music one's going to be difficult because there's been a lot of new interesting composers, less from the classic ones. In fact, yeah, very well, little. Well, I, don't, I barely remember any Hubbard or Galway this year. I, think I, don't, I, got, I don't know that there's been any, has there maybe one or two? Galway did Times of Law. 
Yeah, and Hubbard, I think, is EA now at this point. So I don't think maybe come across one, one or two. One but, or two, yeah. But, but you know, we've got there's new kids on the block, but not them. But, you know. <laughs> they're hanging tough. They are hanging tough. <laughs> they are. This may be the year of the maniacs of noise. I think for the music, I think they're kind of they're pumped up more than anybody else. I can think of Charles Dean and, and Jerome Tell and all the others. And, and yeah, Johann Behergard and people like that. So we'll see. There's been some other. Good ones as well. The music in that um, that weird. What was that one with the bombs where they were, you were following around a bit like flicking? Oh, you really liked that one, didn't you? Yeah, that's yeah. that one, one that they get. There's the one good one he did. Yeah, um, but music this is Jason, really good. You know, Jason Page is it another one? He's been doing some amazing. This, this has been a really yeah. good, a good variety. So it's not just dominated by the same. You know, three or four or five people. Now yeah. we've got a whole bunch of stuff. A few good Mac Gray tracks, I think. Yeah, has yeah, Smith got good but, music? Yes, Maniacs and Eyes. And it's, oh, it's okay, very yeah. good. Well, we'll see what goes on with but, that. But uh, it's very good maniacs of noise music. But by now, this that starts to develop that style, and some people like it, some people don't. So we'll have to see. We will have a listen to them when we do them. If you want, we've well, we put it at the beginning. It's in the shout out. Join the Patreon if you want to. It's a price of a sandwich. Go to kofi.com forward slash up to the past. And if you want to sing us a, sing us a coffee or follow us on Twitter or X, sorry as it is now, Facebook and things like that. Or, or rate and review us. Um, if you want to go to Apple or wherever and give us, uh, put us a review, that supposedly always helps as well. Um, and do stuff like that. I don't think we've got anything else to add. Have you got anything else you wish to add, Graham? I don't at this stage, no. Thank God for Power Drift, but the rest, avoid. Indeed, avoid in a very untouchable. They're all untouchable. I think we just yeah, don't that. touch them. Yeah, don't, don't touch them. you can't touch them. I really wouldn't if I was you. Don't touch them. So on that note, as ever, I have been Adrian Mills and I have been Graham Raddings. And you have been listening to Zap to the Past, and we will see you again as we start December next week. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Zap to the Past podcast. We hope you enjoyed our deep dive into the world of Commodore 64 games, as well as the music, films and TV from around the 1980s, driven, of course, by the issue of Zap 64 magazine published at that time. We will return with a whole new batch of games and stuff to talk about next week. Until then, if you want to listen to or download previous episodes of Zap to the Past, and why wouldn't you, they can all be found on our website at zaptothepast.com, as well as being available on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, Audible, Player FM, and, well, pretty much anywhere where we can upload them. By the way, we do always love to hear from our amazing listeners, so if you'd like to contact us about anything in the podcast or beyond, you can do so by emailing us at zaptothepast at gmail.com. We're also active on Twitter under at Zaptuda, as well as Facebook, Instagram, and most social media platforms. Just search for Zap to the Past and you'll find us. Oh, and if you like the podcast and what we're doing, please do like, share, review, rate us. It really helps. Something, apparently. The Zap to the Past podcast is written and produced by Adrian Mills and Graham Ruddings and recorded at Flaky Bits 2.0 Studio. All opinions expressed are those of the writers, and while we indeed love Zap64 magazine, the Zap to the Past podcast is not affiliated with it in any way. Stay safe, see you next time, and remember, we play these games so you don't have to.